Welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tar and Rama's Hard News on Friday night at BBS Radio Station 1. So we're grateful that you're joining us here tonight. We'd like to take a few moments to go into our heart space. So breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth, several breaths, slowly and gently. Let go of that dross of the day. Go into that heart space. You can hear that calling drum. So gather with your guides, your guardians, your angels, spirit teams, your ancestors, your totems whoever you like to journey with the kimi drum with. 
And there's a council fire, and it's in the center. So gather around that council fire in that perfect circle, in that virtual way we know how to do. As we call in the seven galactic directions in the Mayan tradition. Welcome from the east, the house of light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us so that we may see things clearly. We welcome from the north, the house of night. May wisdom mature among us so that we may see everything from within. In the West, the House of Transformation, may wisdom be transformed into right action so that we might accomplish what must be done. Read from the South, the House of the Eternal Sun, may right action give us the harvest so that we might enjoy the fruit of the planetary being. We welcome from above the house of paradise, where the star people and the ancestors gather, may their blessings be just now. the house of the earth. May the beating of the crystal planet heart bless us with its harmony so that we might end war. And we welcome from the center source of the galaxy, which is everywhere it wants. May everything be recognized as the light of mutual love. Ayam Hunaku Ivamaya Imaho. Ayam Hunaku Ivamaya Imaho. Ayam Hunaku Ivamaya Imaho. All hail the harmony of mind and nature. Om Tatya. In Lakasha, I am another yourself. So just stay wherever that drumbeat took you as we take a look at the Mayan record of days for today and, and for the week ahead, as we do. So this is Ken number 113, and we've got 
three more, including today, uh, portal days, <clears throat> galactic activation portals, um, and that and that series of ten. So we've been doing this all week since since last Friday we started. So uh, all these galactic activation portals every day, ten in a row. So today being a nine band, it's the <clears throat> red solar Skywalker. And it's descriptive words. The keywords for um, the solar day is realizing intention and pulse. And then the Skywalker represents <clears throat> exploring wakefulness and space. So the mantra for today, I feel the output of space with the solar tone of intention. I'm guided by the power of universal water. I am a galactic portal <clears throat> enemy. Oh, yeah, I forgot the first line of it. I pause and or I'm going to just say it again. I pause in order to explore realizing wakefulness. I seal the output of space with the solar tone of intention. I am guided by the power of universal water. I am a galactic activation portal enemy. So the analog or ally today is the white world bridger. Our challenge teacher or gift today is the blue knight. And the occult power for today is the yellow star and the tongue guide is where did I put the tone guide? Oh, I know what it is though. I can't find it, but it's the red moon, so it's Malukas, the tone guide. And uh so there you go. That's we'll we'll be working in the occult with that power of the yellow star and being that skywalker, that's where we're headed, is for all those stars, so we're in good place. And we have that galactic portal energy going on. So enter me. <laughs> and let's look at that a little bit closer, the Skywalker. It's a warrior aspect. And, and it's about working with our focus and striving towards self-elimination and working with clarity. So we embrace these gifts, that strength, and that ability to bend dimensions that Skywalker can do. So let's let go of any resistance to faith or any belief in aloneness as we embrace these energies today. And then moving on to Saturday. Uh, and it's another galactic activation day. It's a 10 each, the white planetary magician. And the magician is a visionary aspect. We're working with the illumination of others, for others, and clarity of mind and purpose. As we embrace these gifts of being that jaguar priestess woman, that jaguar medicine, we embrace integrity and the shaman art. So working with in accordance with divine will, we let go of any control or personal power issues or any manipulation as we embrace these energies on Saturday. And then on Sunday, the last of the 10 portal days is the um, 11 men, which is the blue spectral eagle. And um, then moving 
let's see, let's look at the eagle. It's a vision, another visionary aspect. So it's about our commitment to service. So we're moving consciousness to source with this energy. We're reconnecting with all creation as we do this. So we embrace this gift of independence and that belief in ourselves as we let go of any feelings of despair or dissociation or the illusion of separateness. So that's Sunday, multidimensionally. <laughs> and then on Monday, it's the 12 key, the yellow crystal warrior. And it's also um, a holiday in the United States known as Memorial Day. And so we're working with this key, how perfect, we're working with this key energy of the warrior, this aspect of the warrior aspect. So it's about trusting in our journey and bringing awareness of right action. So we embrace these gifts of communication with the divine and that access to cosmic consciousness. We let go of any limitation or restriction or hesitation. So that's Memorial Day on Monday and then on Sunday, I mean on Tuesday, excuse me, it's a 13 Kaban. Um, so, yeah, and I have to mention it is the Crystal Warrior. The tone 12 on Monday. Okay. So 13, Kaban on Tuesday, the red cosmic earth. So that's completing the wave of this, the red serpent and Chichang on this day, on Tuesday. And that's that promise of shifting as we transition from one wave to the next. We have that promise of change. <clears throat> So this red crystal warrior is what we, we were talking about for Monday and then Tuesday, the, the red kaban, that's the healing aspect. So we're working as keeper of the earth and that awareness of earth's energy. We, we embrace these, that gift of that access to planetary harmony as we are the balancing point and we use our intuition and listen to what she needs and and being that balancing point, and then let go of any separation or any failure to redesign, and let go of any dissociation with this energy on Tuesday. And then Wednesday, we start a new union, and it's the core days. So we have 20 days of core days, and these are just like the galactic activation portals, and it's, and it's, I, it's also called growing up the spine of the snake. So when you're at the top at a niche, you're at the bottom when you look because this is how it's seen from the galaxy. So um, I know that other Mayan readers don't look at it that way. So you'll see a little joy I know looks at it completely differently. <laughs> the other way around. But it's just uh, one of the teachings that got lost in the process, and I'm, I feel fortunate to have that teaching, that it's a perspective from the top, and as you look at the hob, which is where you see all the portal days, it almost looks like an X in this graph where there's 13 unials across the top and the 20 days going down the side, it's like a graph, and uh, when you look at that design of those portal days, it makes it like an like a kind of an X, and you're looking at the 
top of it at a meet, you're actually looking at the feet going up the spine. So <laughs> it's 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 confusing possibly, but um, it's perspective, right? So we're starting this the the core days with a one etch knob, the white magnetic mirror. So we're starting a new wave. And, yeah. You know, I have that wrong. I've told, we're still in the other union. Excuse me. We, we don't start until on Friday. So I back that up. We're starting a new wave, not a new union. Okay. So we're going to stay in the flow while staying grounded with this en- energy of Etchnob. We have 13 days of that. It's the white magnetic mirror. And this is on Wednesday, so we have this warrior aspect with the mirror, and it's about working on groundedness and that wise ease of honesty and self-understanding. So we embrace these gifts of scrying the unseen and that fluidity and persistence of the mirror. So let's let go of any illusions of separateness as we embrace these energies. On Wednesday, let go of fear, any abandonment issues, any illusions. As we worked with Etchnob for the next two weeks. And then on Thursday, it's the two co-ops, the blue, <clears throat> the blue lunar storm. And that's a visionary aspect on Thursday, where it's about creating transformation for others as we're lighting clear thoughts. So embrace these gifts of that possibility of freedom, that power of catalyzing. We let go of any addiction to crisis, despair, fear, or any illusion of separateness. And then on Friday, we complete this union with a three of how the yellow electric sun. And it's also the full moon. Let me check and make sure that that's on that day because it is the 3rd of June at this point. No, it's on Saturday. The the full moon's on Saturday. Okay. The 2nd of June. And it's a three of how the yellow electric sun, the how of the healing aspect. It's about that rise to Christ consciousness. So we're striving towards wholeness. We're transmitting energy to others. And we're embracing these gifts of possibility thinking. The gift of unconditional love, the God self. So let go of any limitation or separation as we embrace these energies on Thursday. And then Friday, when we come back, we will start those core days. It'll be a one of each. And that's the red dragon. So it's the red magnetic dragon. And it's an artist aspect. So this is about creation. It's the first solar glyph. So it's creation right there. Self-dependence is about trusting in the universe and clarity of mind. As we set our intentions for this union, we set our intentions for these core days, which I just told you about. <laughs> going going up the spine of the snake. That was a snake. So we embrace these gifts with that source of creation in the beginning and let go of any illusion of lack of support as we do we go up this part of the state. We've got 20 quarter days coming starting next Friday. And, um, yeah, and then moving on to Saturday, and I'm going to give you the whole Friday and next week because 
I won't be here next week, so write it down, take notes. Saturday is a 4E niche. It's about, it's the red self-existing dragon. And as we begin the seventh funeral, we begin the 24 days. It starts Saturday, and the full moon is on Saturday at 11.42 p.m. And then on Sunday at 5 peak, the white overtone wind on Sunday, and on Monday, the 6th off fall, the blue rhythmic night. Tuesday is a 7 con, the yellow resonant seed. Wednesday is an 8 chichong, the red galactic snake. Thursday is a 9 kimi the white solar linker of worlds. And Friday's a 10 Monique, the blue planetary hand. And I'll see you that Friday, but not next Friday. So um, so there you go. That's the week ahead and the one ahead of that. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to change my hat again. We're going to talk about the housekeeping as we are a listener supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. And this week, we just need another $24 and change to meet our commitment from the third week. And uh, we need another 289 to meet our commitment for last week. So that's $313 needed for BBS Radio. And here's how we pay for our fees with BBS Radio. We have an account there, and it access by clicking on the icon that's listed in the menu or the schedule. So as you go to bbsradio.com, you'll see on the home page uh, a link for the schedule. Click on that, and that gives you the menu. You, you're looking at Thursday and Friday and Saturday where our three shows are. If it's Friday, you'll find the hard news on Friday night at the 8 o'clock hour. These are all central times. There's an icon with that. Listing, click on that icon that takes you directly to our account with CBS Radio where you can make a donation in any amount. The Thursday night show is a night at the round table with the panel at the 8 o'clock hour. And you'll see that icon there that you can click on to get to our account. And this, the Saturday show is on, those are all on BBS Radio Station 1. So you do have to. Click on Radio Station 1 to find that on the schedule. Now, on Radio Station 2, on Saturdays, you'll see at the the 3.30 hour, um, the true history, history of Nasera and our galactic origins with Tara and Rama. And that program starts at 3.30 Central. And you can click on that icon there, and that'll take you directly to our account. So there's where you do that. So go into your heart space, see what is yours to give, and then thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. We are so grateful. And I feel like we're only one week behind. We're so close to being just one week behind. We are are with it. So lots of gratitude for everyone pitching in and and getting us caught up a couple hundred dollars. (laughs) So... Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for all the ways you show up, and this is a good way to show up. So lots of gratitude. So we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and this week um, they have the rent due, and that's being taken care of by some dedicated souls, making sure that it always happens every month. And it's the rest of us that get to take care of the gas bill, the Internet bill, the electric bill, 
And here's what they are. The gas bill is $20. The internet bill is $146.24. And the electric bill is $124.68. So we're looking at approximately one, two, three, $300. And they have another one due on the 4th of June. So I will mention that. That's $158.96. Um, Cheryl will talk about that next Friday when she takes my place. And uh, there you go. Um, <laughs> that's what's happening. About $300. They need a couple hundred dollars for living expenses. And uh, that'll do it. They'll get by and and we'll all get by and we're so grateful for your contributions. To Tara and Rama, we're grateful for all that they do to present these shows and put things in front of us and give us the forum to work with and uh, where we all can gather each week this way. Lots of gratitude for that. And I would also like to mention NFT Rewards. Um, NFT Rewards is a, a community that as they work on a blockchain system and we work together with um, the people that we sign up and, and work under us, we set up our own business that way and we're in control of it. We have a wallet and when any money comes in, it comes into that wallet. So it's like a very simple program. And But because we work in a group to do um, bidding, doing bids, we buy big packages. That's what you do for these penny auctions. You buy a bid package. And then you can either work those bids yourself or you can set it on automatically and just join the group for whatever they're doing. And those those need to be done every day. So it automatic is pretty uh, pretty makes it pretty simple that it happens that way. So you set it that way. Or if you're really wanting to do your own process, you can do it. But it's in there for 90 days and draws an interest daily of 1.5, so if we don't make it, they have other projects around that are, they're really wanting to make the 1.5. It might be a little less sometimes, but they're setting it up to have that feed coming in on a daily basis, and then after 90 days, you get that money back. So a $100 package would give you back your $100, and then that 1.5% give you whatever that is out of those 90 days, <clears throat> which is pretty good. It's close to $90 again, so or maybe more. Um, so it's a good return on your money. Um, and that's only one of the ways that it makes money. It is actually building that community that makes it happen. And they they have a suite called the iMetatool, and, and there's where you can go and actually um, – Purchase leads for building that that that, um, that community, and so if you don't have people, then of course the people you know that once you tell them it has a wallet and it pays you every day, a lot of people will be interested in that. So it'll be pretty easy to uh, work with your own community of people, check your contacts, and and do that. So the um, address to join with for the the group with Tara and Rama is Koran or okay, Nit hmm, NFT Rewards dot biz B I Z B I Z 
and um, oh, I know what I forgot to do. I forgot to tell you the rest of it. Anyway, I'll get back to that. So it's stop this and the uh, username then forward slash Koran K O R A N nine nine nine. So N F T F is in Frank. N is in Nancy. F is in Frank. T is in Tom. Rewards dot biz b i z or z forward slash k o r a n nine 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 and that would be signing up with Tara and Mama. <clears throat> you might sign up with one of us that needs somebody to sign up because as you sign up, then you qualify yourself for those commissions, and the commissions are. 10% on the first level and 5% on the second. So we can work together a little bit. If someone's joined, but they don't have anyone, they they just know us, they can speak up and say, hey, could somebody sign up under me? And we can do that on the conference call. But I wanted to finish giving you the update because I forgot to give you the um, address for, for making a donation to Tar and Lama. You need to go to the web address, so it's rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, you see the menu grid. Click on that, and you, there's a donate link near the bottom of that list, and that takes you to Rama's PayPal account, where you can make a donation in any amount. And um, using your bank card, and you can access the friends option by looking for that little heart on the page that where you can gift at on that home page there, and that heart will connects you to the friends option. And what you need for that is Rama's email at that site, and that email address is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999, at hotmail.com. <clears throat> I'll say it again, Koran, 9999, hotmail, at hotmail.com. And that just eliminates the commercial charges. Either way, is perfect. We're grateful for your gift, grateful for your generosity. As you're sending something, please let Rama know, and that email address for that is Koran, K-O-R-E-N, 999-39 at Comcast.net. And there you have it. Uh, oh, yeah, and the physical address, as you need it, is as follows. Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M. D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip code. I'll say it again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, the whole update. I did a little inside out, just like the report was, so <laughs> it all works. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 13 thank yous, honey, in the heart. I'm passing this talking stick, and it looks like they're doing lots of celebrations for the full moon, and they're also really celebrating the powerful days that we're in. So Quetzalcoatl is on the stick, that rainbow serpent feathered one, <laughs> and all kinds of fairies and feathers. All the rays are in there. They're just a 
giving us the power and energy to do the transmutation and everything, all the rays and all the rainbows and um, all kinds of birds and all kinds of feathers and all kinds of fairies and little people, the Manahunis and the Hobbits and uh, the Blue People. <laughs> and there you go. Greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes his talking stick. And the magical beasts are there, too. The unicorns and the dragons. Greetings. 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 Thank you, Rainbird, and all those magical beings that you are with us. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. We are so grateful to be here. And I just want to make sure everybody knows the unicorns are completely real, and they are an enlightened species. Yep. And that's... They're here with us. Yes. Along with... Uh, what else? Manahunis and Sasquatch and... <laughs> Dragons. And blue people. Yeah. <laughs> it's all real. It's all real. And many are having them manifest right before their very eyes. You're sitting right next to them and... We've got all kinds of dancing with the Dharma wheel of uh, service. That's what we're, we're up to now. It's world service time. And uh, the thing that's really important to know when we do the NFT rewards, that we're bringing abundance to us so that we can be of service to others. And that includes us as well. But what I'm saying is that we always think of um, that there's only one of us here and that what we do is we do everything to be of service to the world group service consciousness. That's how I want to say it. So that being said, how about I read what you told me about what you received today for a message? Okay. Okay. I received a text message from Tom, Larry, Curly, and Mo at 12.30 p.m. early this afternoon. They all said to me, Lord Rama, the energies are so high that you can beam up at any time. <laughs> Did you go up today? I felt like it. I was, you know, near Sun Mountain along Old Santa Fe Trail, and I went out towards El Dorado and found a spot, and ten deer showed up and three crows. Where? Oh, on the way as you go towards Pecos, it's... Uh, okay, on that side road. Yeah. Along the freeway. Yeah. Past the El Dorado turn. Yeah. Yeah, that's where they would be quieter. And the energies are just saying, stay in the oneness, the magnificence of what's unfolding right now with the rays of the sun coming in it is 
really awesome to behold. So the stories that are unfolding today are all about failing empire. Yeah. The failing empire. They are shadows that are quickly disappearing. Um, as you as you stop and breathe and step into the oneness, your reality shifts. As you listen to the silence, you can hear your own heart beating. We're going to play a piece tonight. Um, it's a by that's a pioneers. I think it might be, but anyway, they're talking about actually putting their ear to the earth and could hear her heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to keep Rainbird's brother in the circle of support. He's over the rainbow. I think he's helping us at this point in time. And um, thank you. I just want to. In behalf of all of us, thank you, Rainbird. The steadfastness and consistency and persistence and determination with which you are working together with all of us to inform us and 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 teach us about the Mayan calendar. That's really the best. The best. The Mayan calendars. The next step. Living in third dimensional consciousness has given way to fifth dimensional consciousness, and the teachings and that Mayan calendar are all about that. All right, so um, with higher consciousness, our own heartbeat synchronizes with Mother Gaia's heartbeat. Reality is shifting at quantum light speed. Call in the angels the teachers, the masters, go deep into the silence. As you open your eyes, they will be sitting right beside you. This is how we learn to use the power of the force. As we go through this memorial weekend, send the violet flame and love to all the troubled spots on Mother Gaia. See you in the light of the most radiant one. All we are saying is give peace a chance. War no more. War is over, as John no. Lennon had said. Got to play him again. Satnam. Namaste. Blaze of fire, everybody. So, Rama, share some stuff. We got about ten minutes here. Ah. Uh. Uh, what Tom, Larry, Curly, and Moe shared with me today, I sat in the oneness, and like I said, the ten deer showed up, and the three crows, and they wanted to play, and I was saying to them, let's just sit and work with the silence of the energies and the deer 
calm down and they just laid down and watched me <laughs> and I did the Om Triambakam and the other mantras to call in the energies and they just sat and watched me for about 15 minutes and then they had to go. They just uh, had a urge. They got up and left. <laughs> and I mean, but they follow you everywhere. They follow me everywhere. They do. Yeah. They know all the back ways. They know how to find me over it's, the river and through the woods, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to Rama's place we go. <laughs> um. I was just going to put this figure of $25 in our consciousness. Uh, we'll have enough to send uh, Don and Doug for the third week. It'll be complete with $25. Uh, so let's have that happen. Thank you, everyone. And then there's one more week where we require, of course, those three bills, $300. Plus another two, two eighty nine, and every week till the end of the year. At this point, uh, we're adding an extra thirty dollars to each week uh, because there were so many bills to get the uh, Sapphire Blue our shuttlecraft going that nothing went to BBS Radio. So, thank you for all of the the and and again nftrewards.com, right? Yeah. Or is there another thing? Is it dot com? No. No. It's not biz. Dot biz. Okay. B-I-Z. I like that better. Dot <laughs> biz. Okay. It's the business of the collective mind and heart and beingness of humanity. Everybody has enough time, love, money, air to breathe. Thank you very much. No more war. Only peace and love. Okay. Anything else on your mind, Rainbird? Oh, concerning NFT rewards, I think it's just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant plan. It's really a way that we do build community, and that's what we're doing, and, and have the money to give. Yes, it's a sense of abundance and fulfillment that we can have the money to give, that we have it. That's the deal. Yes, Rainbird. And it's it's not built on competition, and it's not built for just for the sake of the money. It's for being able to work together with money to create a better world. And that's really important that we have all that we need to do that with. All right. Rama, did you say there's another conference call for NFT rewards in the morning? Yeah. So where do you go to look for it? Um, They send you a message. Well, not if you're not signed up yet. Oh. You know, people Um, want to sign up. Just go to NFT rewards dot biz yes and then you can navigate from there and forward yeah. slash k-o-r-a-n-nine-nine-nine so that you're signing up under that 
unless you want to sign up under one of us so that needs that needs somebody. But that's what we can talk about on the conference call a little bit because maybe maybe there's people that don't know how to sign up, but they really give you that tool where you if you don't have anyone to sign up, you can just pay sixty two dollars and fifty cents, and they'll give you one hundred um, leads. And yeah. and out of the hundred leads, you'll get some response, and so you can get somebody under you that way, and that's worth doing because that's how you can build build a business, your own business, and you're really building a business is what that is. It's a lot of work at first, and a lot to wrap your head around at first a little bit, but if you just follow the instructions and try not to. <laughs> to worry about if you're confused or anything. It, it'll it sort this thing out. Mike has been really good at helping me because I had a lot of questions and I had done things wrong in my working with the Meta tool. So, but there's a there's a place on the Meta tool which is the suite that sends you those leads and they have a getting started. Be sure to look at that and read it really good because it'll help you with how how you how to use that tool, the meta tool. And it's just brilliant to me and these leads they give you have already been vetted as people that are interested in doing this kind of stuff. So that's why the results are so good. Absolutely wunderbar, Rainbow. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, yeah, it's brilliant. It's really brilliant, and I'm really impressed that that they have that in place. And the other things that you have to do is the KYC when you get the paper when you do your wallet, and and <clears throat> you know that's just KYC, a little. Rainbow, do. what, does KYC, what does KYC stand for? Know your customer. Oh, your customer. Okay. Yeah. So when you're setting up a wallet, they want to make sure they know who you are because they're going to give you money in that wallet. That's going to be, you know, where the money comes. Okay. Um, and I believe it comes in U.S. dollars. Yeah, it comes in dollars. So it's not like you have to transfer it out of crypto or anything. They're just using the crypto business to to collaborate with and because we're collaborating we can really have some control over what's going on with the crypto because it is a matter of building uh, a base of people <clears throat> so what John Austin and John Austin has been is who's who we're all signed up under and he he's saying get 10 people and help them get 10 people so you do have a business doing that and um you know, it's a little bit of work, and but once you get it rolling, I think that it it, it fulfills itself a lot. Money what? will be coming in that you can save for buying the um, the bid packages, and you have to have a bid package and one person under you to be eligible within thirty days. Those are the two requirements to have it, to have done in thirty days. So that you can get those, continue to get those commissions, and that's it. You have to have one person under you, <clears throat> and Are you have you to saying, try a bid. So, isn't there another requirement every ninety days? Isn't there? I thought there no, was. No, that bid package goes in for ninety days. So you can sit around and twirl your thumbs for ninety days if you want. 
I mean, <laughs> put it yeah. on automatic and it's going. But um, so you, can also, trying to build that. you can also add a bid package anytime if you want another one. You can just do that and then it'll yeah, start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can. You can anytime that you, you have enough money in the wallet to buy another one. That's a good Because the people under you will, like, if you have a $100 bid package, and the person under you decides to buy a $1,000 bid package, then you're going to get $100 in commission for that. So you can buy it. Wow, that's nice. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah. Yeah, at, at a certain point you can buy up to a $10,000 bid package, right? Right. Yeah, and if someone buys a $10,000 bid package, you're going to get a $1,000. So what you do with that, you can only get what you have a package for. So you'll get $100, and then then the next day you'll get another $100, and then the next day you'll get another $100. And what, that, well then, then at some point, you're or you buy a big package, you can only get it for how much is in your account. So these they they described to me how you can do that in five days. You can get those thousand because you're you're getting the commissions to come in. I mean, it's just showing there, so they can be, they they can give you the the money. It's kind of an odd thing, but there's actually seven different ways of making money on this. So money's coming in from spillovers. It's coming in from It's coming in from your bid package. It's coming in from the a matrix that's two by twenty-one, and even if it's not all filled out, you're still going to be getting parts of that because everybody, everybody's going to get money on that. So it's okay, just amazing. Remember, remember, we got we got to go because I just look at the time. Uh, oh, okay. To be continued. Thank you, Rainbird. Okay, Rama, the phone numbers for the conference. Uh, uh, seven two zero seven one six seven three zero one. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, see you on the conference, everyone. And then at the top of the following hour, we'll be right back here at BBS Radio, the best radio there is, bar none. Namaste, see you on the conference, everybody. Aloha.
Precious Heart, thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. Today, Mother Mary and St. Germain are empowering the gifts they are blessing all life on earth with during this mystical month of May. The following activity of light is being exponentially intensified by every person's I am presence in order to prepare us further 
for the events that we are being called to co-create during the 37th Annual World Congress on Illumination, which will take place in August. For that event, every person will be in his or her right and perfect place. This preparation is a gift for all of us, no matter where we will be August 12th through the 17th in 2023. If you have the heart call to participate in this gift from on high, please join me now. And we begin. As we enter Mother Mary's Temple of the Immaculate Heart in our finer bodies during this month of May, beloved Mother Mary greets us and embraces us in her loving arms. With her embrace, she helps our I am presence to awaken within each of us the remembrance of our sojourn in her sacred temple prior to this embodiment. We begin to remember that we came to earth during this cosmic moment with but one desire, to do God's will. We understand now that we volunteered to be powerful instruments of God during this critical time, and that we have been training for eons of time for this mission. We also remember that we promised to be the full manifestation of divine love while serving the light in this embodiment. With St. Germain's and Mother Mary's assistance, we remember that we chose to bring a portion of the divine plan encoded within our heart flame through the veil of physical birth. St. Germain and Mother Mary remind us of the vows they took to come and assist us during this time of the fulfillment of our missions. These two selfless beings of light also help us to remember the capacity we already have within our life streams to fulfill our divine purpose with love compassion, forgiveness, dignity, honor, and victory. During this mystical month of May, Mother Mary and St. Germain are assisting our I Am Presence to expand the chalice of our Immaculate Heart. This chalice cradles our immortal victorious threefold flame. The expansion of the chalice of our Immaculate Heart is allowing our heart flame to expand until it envelops our physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies. As this occurs, our heart flame blazes forth as a great transfiguring force of divinity within us. We are becoming enlightened to the presence of God in every cell and atom of our beings. 
This is paving the way for the integration and the assimilation of the brand new frequencies of enlightenment and oneness now expanding through our heart flame. Functioning within these new frequencies of enlightenment and oneness, we are able to consciously amplify unity consciousness within ourselves and all humanity. Now, through the collective cup of our upreaching consciousness, we will breathe the sacred essence of divine love, illumined truth, forgiveness, healing, prosperity, peace, joy, and happiness into the world of form. This is further preparing humanity and Mother Earth for the influx of light that will fill the voids with the patterns of perfection for the new Earth after the reactivation of the innate latent abilities encoded within humanity's 12 fifth dimensional crystalline solar strands of DNA. This will occur through the unified efforts of heaven and earth during the 37th World Congress on Illumination. Your I am presence has magnetized this information into your sphere of awareness for a reason. You have been preparing for eons of time to be an instrument of God during this facet of the divine plan. Know that the more light workers who are consciously participating in the miraculous events that will occur during the 37th World Congress on Illumination, the more powerful our chalice of light will be and the more light we will be able to transmit into the physical plane of Earth to assist in fulfilling this unprecedented facet of the divine plan. Listen to your heart and ask your I Am Presence to reveal to you how your divine presence will most effectively assist in this wondrous opportunity to selflessly serve the light. Beloved Father, Mother, God, from your glorious heart, we were breathed into being as divinely conscious sons and daughters of God. And into your loving heart one day, when our learning experiences on earth are complete, we shall return as our I am presences grown to full stature. We thank you for the privilege of having life and for having physical embodiments during this cosmic moment on earth. When we and our sisters and brothers who fell from grace eons ago will at long last co-create the experiences of returning to unity consciousness. Beloved Father, Mother, God, and beloved Mother Mary and Saint Germain, 
just a minute, folks. I had to interrupt because uh, BBS Radio is telling us the sound is sounding distorted. So we're going to reboot and start again. Sorry for the interruption. Okay. Thank you. It'll be about five minutes, maybe ten. Greeting, folks. We're back, and things are sounding good. So here we go with Patty once again. Precious Heart, thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. Today, Mother Mary and St. Germain are empowering the gifts they are blessing all life on earth with during this mystical month of May. The following activity of life is being exponentially intensified by every person's I am presence in order to prepare us further for the events that we are being called to co-create during the 37th Annual World Congress on Illumination, which will take place in August. For that event, every person will be in his or her right and perfect place. This preparation is a gift for all of us, no matter where we will be August 12th through the 17th in 2023. If you have the heart call to participate in this gift from on high, please join me now. And we begin. As we enter Mother Mary's Temple of the Immaculate Heart in our finer bodies during this month of May, beloved Mother Mary greets us and embraces us in her loving arms. With her embrace, she helps our I am presence to awaken within each of us the remembrance of our sojourn in her sacred temple prior to this embodiment. We begin to remember that we came to earth during this cosmic moment with but one desire to do God's will. We understand now that we volunteered to be powerful instruments of God during this critical time and that we have been training for eons of time for this mission. We also remember that we promised to be the full manifestation of divine love while serving the light in this embodiment. With St. Germain's and Mother Mary's assistance, we remember that we chose to bring a portion of the divine plan encoded within our heart flame through the veil of physical birth. St. Germain and Mother Mary remind us of the vows they took to come and assist us during this time 
of the fulfillment of our missions. These two selfless beings of light also help us to remember the capacity we already have within our life streams to fulfill our divine purpose with love, compassion, forgiveness, dignity, honor, and victory. During this mystical month of May, Mother Mary and St. Germain are assisting our I Am Presence to expand the chalice of our Immaculate Heart. This chalice cradles our immortal victorious threefold flame. The expansion of the chalice of our Immaculate Heart is allowing our heart flame to expand until it envelops our physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies. As this occurs, our heart flame blazes forth as a great transfiguring force of divinity within us. We are becoming enlightened to the presence of God in every cell and atom of our beings. This is paving the way for the integration and the assimilation of the brand new frequencies of enlightenment and oneness now expanding through our heart flame. Functioning within these new frequencies of enlightenment and oneness, we are able to consciously amplify unity consciousness within ourselves and all humanity. Now, through the collective cup of our upreaching consciousness, we will breathe the sacred essence of divine love, illumined truth, forgiveness, healing, prosperity, peace, joy, and happiness into the world of form. This is further preparing humanity and Mother Earth for the influx of light that will fill the voids with the patterns of perfection for the new Earth after the reactivation of the innate latent abilities encoded within humanity's 12 fifth-dimensional crystalline solar strands of DNA. This will occur through the unified efforts of heaven and earth during the 37th World Congress on Illumination. Your I am presence has magnetized this information into your sphere of awareness for a reason. You have been preparing for eons of time to be an instrument of God during this facet of the divine plan. Know that the more light workers who are consciously participating in the miraculous events that will occur during the 37th World Congress on Illumination, the more powerful our chalice of light will be and the more light we will be able to transmit into the physical plane of Earth to assist in fulfilling this unprecedented facet 
of the divine plan. Listen to your heart and ask your I am presence to reveal to you how your divine presence will most effectively assist in this wondrous opportunity to selflessly serve the light. Beloved Father, Mother, God, from your glorious heart, we were breathed into being as divinely conscious sons and daughters of God. And into your loving heart one day, when our learning experiences on earth are complete, we shall return as our I am presences grown to full stature. We thank you for the privilege of having life and for having physical embodiments during this cosmic moment on earth. When we and our sisters and brothers who fell from grace eons ago will at long last co-create the experiences of returning to unity consciousness. Beloved Father, Mother, God, and beloved Mother Mary and Saint Germain. Thank you for allowing all of us to serve as instruments of God during this auspicious moment when every person's I am present is receiving the guidance from on high to expand our immortal victorious threefold flame to its original divine potential. We are deeply grateful to individually and collectively serve as surrogates on behalf of humanity, the elemental kingdom and Mother Earth. We now offer the cup of our consciousness as a holy grail through which the light of God will flow this sacred and holy day to ensure that all life on earth will victoriously return to unity consciousness through his or her own endeavors. Through the grace of our Mother God's comprehensive divine love and our Father God's divine will and power, we are now reclaiming our full divine potential as divinely conscious sons and daughters of God. And so it is, beloved, I am that I am. Dear one, please express your infinite love and gratitude to beloved Mother Mary and Saint Germain for the awesome gifts they are blessing us with this month. If you are interested in participating in any way in the 37th World Congress on Illumination, all of the information you need is posted on our website, eraofpeace.org. God bless you. I look forward to being with you next week.
Big Zero Ones, I'm Cryon of Magnetic Service. All hidden from you very well by coming down in a corporeal form and working in what you would call four dimension, which was added to that beautiful soul that was needed for those special old souls to come in memory. The intrinsic abilities from a past life that simply are in the DNA. These things we didn't say are stored in certain portions of the DNA of your body. If you had to know where these things are, that's where they are. You have to have a corporeal storage medium, even for esoteric things. It cannot all then reside in some consciousness space that you can't identify. It's all in the DNA. There's room in the DNA for so many things besides the blueprint of the human body. Your Akashic record is there. There's more. There are some overlays, I'll call them, that have nothing to do with the storage of abilities or past lives or memories. But even before we go to the overlays, I want to tell you this, everything that happened in all of your lives is still there. Even some of the remarkably boring things are still there. Some of you pick these up, your ones in dreams, especially what I will call dreams that repeat. You'll find yourself in a place you've never been, doing something you've never done over and over. This is classic memories of small detailed things that made a difference somehow in a past life. It's all there. Past life readers will tell you one of the attributes of reading is that it's not time stamped. And what I mean by that is you can't go back and locate necessarily what lifetime number it is. You might analyze where it was in history by what you feel you might have been wearing, but that's it. So the Akashic memory called the past life memory is not arranged like a library. It's not numbered. You remember energy. And the energies come to the surface that are most profound for you now. And in this new energy, I'll tell you, the ones that come to the surface, an old soul, are shamanic memories. You're starting to remember wisdom. The entire basis for the sisterhood, as you know it, with Meli Ha, is that. Many women are starting to remember that shamans are women. And that is how it started. They have the equipment, they have that which is intuition. They have the compassion for child care, child giving, life. They have all of the things you would want as mom to guide you through life and your spirituality. That is starting to be remembered. 
That's different from what it was. And the reason why that organization even exists. You see, your Akash is starting to awaken. But that's not what this is about. I want to tell you about the overlays. The soul hasn't even come into the planet yet. And we're starting to design it. Now this design of the soul coming in is your design. It contains all of the things it needs to from your past lives of being a human being. Overlays. The overlays we're going to call one is what you have described as karma. Now karma as defined is unfinished business. Things that perhaps happened in a past life that you either need to finish or in some cultures, you need to have it done to you. <laughs> and that's a finish, a completion of sorts. Either way, there is karmic overlay, which when you come into the planet for some, they feel it. There's something you're supposed to do. There's some completion you're supposed to have. And it often will lay upon you completely apart from any Kashic memories, totally. That's the karma. Dear ones, when I arrived in 1989, the first thing I told my partner was that he needed to drop his karma. And that there was an energy coming that would not support it. That it needed to be eliminated for him to move on. He didn't understand what that was because he never dealt with karma. It made it easier to dismiss it for him. We didn't know what it was. A lot more difficult for some humanity to dismiss karma when they're taught that that's what their life is about. The first transcribed publication which you call book one, drop your karma. That was what we said. It was an engine of energy for an old time. It gets in the way of an old soul in a new time. So perhaps there are those listening now or later who have looked at this all very carefully and said, well, this is my karma and this is what I'm supposed to do. I will tell you, karma plays no part in your life, none. You are to drop it all because it's an old system of completion. You don't need it. There are other things right now that you need far more than that. It's an awakening to higher purpose. Karma is not higher purpose. In the past, it served its purpose indeed, and it was needed and necessary and accurate. Not now. The next one we'll call contract. All of these placed into the soul in a beautiful way before you ever came into this planet. Now, contract not to be confused with something I'm going to tell you in a moment regarding the wind of birth. But contract as described now is what some of you feel you're about. I've come into this planet you say in order to build a healing center, in order to write a book, in order to do this or that, I have come with my talents 
in order to add something to this and make this happen, I can feel it. And all of that is accurate. But here's what I want to tell you about that which you believe is contract. It's a bad word. For contract in your culture is a binding agreement. It's something you must do because you signed on for it. I would like to ask you this. How does that fit in with free choice? And the answer is it doesn't. Contract is something that occurs when you get here is an invisible ink. You can rewrite it at any time you wish based upon new things you discover or even an elevated consciousness that you might then enjoy. Contracts are that which are beginning baselines. That's all they are. They aren't something that you have for life no matter what. There are so many light workers who have opportunities to move on to something higher and stop it and say, yes, but that wasn't my contract. My contract was this, and they go on to try to fulfill it and never do. The contract is simply a beginning marker. It helps you to point to a direction that is going to bring you in contact with that which is good and with others who have similar ideas of contract. Past that, again, rewrite it at any time you wish. Doesn't it make sense that when you come across conditions and situations that are grander and higher than that which you had before in a past life, that you would then go up those stairs and move into a situation that has no contract because you've never been there. And that's when you say, God bless the contract that got me to these stairs. You bless it and send it away and climb them into a higher consciousness and a new part of life with new people and new friends, new locations, all of these things that have nothing to do with the energy of your birth. I hope you would understand that that is the difference between what you thought was a contract and now what is the truth of a contract. Old soul, you have free choice. You have free choice to move to higher consciousnesses. You have free choice to change your ideas of what this planet needs, where, you're, where, where you fit in, and not be a slave to something that you felt in an old energy that you felt was you. Because that which is you can be redefined completely by you at any time you want, any time. We gave a dramatic demonstration of this not too long ago. We told you you're, you're defined from birth. As a review, we told you that if you take a sticky note and start writing all the things that define you and put it on your body, you're going to have that which is defined from your gender. You're going to be defined by your culture, who you are, what you are, even that which you're supposed to believe because of birth. That which your parents taught you, that which your instructors taught you, sticky, 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 sticky. That's who you are. And you walk around with all the sticky notes and everybody reads them. That's who you are. What part did you play in that? The answer is none. We said maybe it's time to, to do what the dogs do when they take a bath. And shake so much that all the sticky notes fall off. And then you take one and define it for the first time. Who am I? 
You write it carefully, child of God, <laughs> put it on and you go from there. No place on there is a sticky note with your contract. Is it's fallen off with all of the others because you're now free choice to see things at a higher level than ever before. These are some of the things which will go into you, the preparation of coming to this planet every single time. You think it's automatic that there's, there's, there's some kind of system that churns you out even upstairs, but in that place beyond the veil, you, you think of it the way it is here and it isn't careful, loving, beautiful. And in a time you, the time frame is not even a frame. It's, it's outside of time. So you might say that there's a, a space given for this, which is beyond that, which is your clock. Careful it is, beautiful it is. And then you would say, because you're a human being, what choice do I have in any of it? And the answer is so profound. There's nobody sitting designing this. You're doing it. You're picking up the pieces and putting them right back where they belong. You are assembling you carefully, putting together that which is the soul, the DNA memory, Akashic record, overlays, all that is there carefully. You're doing it. You're doing it because you have the mind of God. You're a piece of the whole when you're not here. And you're about ready to come back. This is where it gets complicated and magnificent. We have told you there is something called the wind of birth. And we can't define it. Two other times we've tried, there are no words. Imagine you stand on the other side of the veil and there is seemingly a wind blowing. And through that gap going to the planet, the wind blows toward you, goes up. Because that's where you're going. You're sensing all of the energy that is there. Now the complexity begins. We've told you that you incarnate on purpose with attributes and in groups and with people that here now you might say that would never have happened. I would never have chosen this family. Oh, yes, you did. <laughs> this is complicated. For the better good of consciousness for yourself, for those you incarnate, sometimes as the teacher, sometimes as the one to be taught. Sometimes you incarnate profoundly as lessons for others. I want you to think for a moment of what that might be. You see, you're not alone. Do the statistics. How many are born every day on the planet? Take that number and imagine for a moment that day you're all together at the wind of birth. Let's say that there's a stadium full of you. 
but you all know one another. And the magnificence of this meeting is you all know where you're going and what you're going to do. If this were an earthly meeting, there would be tears. Tears of appreciation and joy for what you're about to do. And one by one, you will watch the souls go into that place, that wind of birth, and into a corporeal body on the other side. And as you meet them and you see them, as they go in one by one, two by two sometimes, you know their stories, you know all of it. Because on the other side of the veil, all things are known. Other souls just like you, some of which you know, some of whom you know, are there, coming back. Some of them you recognize because they're going to be in your group eventually when you get there and you meet one another, some are not. They're going to their own groups. But the profound ones are happening as well. There goes that one, blessed is he who's decided to come to the earth and live for three months and come back. Are you getting this? That was the choice of the soul. To come in and die early because there was something to tell a parent. It was a bond of love or not, depending upon how the parents chose to see it. He was coming down to, to do something that would seem so sorrowful at the moment. And yet it would make such a difference in their lives forever. And that was what he was going to do. Another one was coming in to live until they were a teenager. Another one just like that until they were 24. And at that time, they knew that in the field, the potential and the family and all the things around them is that they would come back with our own choice through what you call the shame of suicide. They went in with that potential, dear ones, and it wasn't shameful. It was something designed to kick the parents in the pants and make them have decisions they would never have made otherwise, or maybe to put them in a place where they'd look around and search for God and find it. You think of that? That's a sacrifice. That's not shameful. That's beautiful. Think of somebody who would go through that and think this is going to change the life of my parents. And for a, for a little while, it's going to be something shameful. But there'll come a time, perhaps, when they will celebrate my life and thank me for this, because now they are old souls who awaken. They're helping the planet, and they never would have before. And that's my purpose. Now that is another kind of contract, isn't it? That is a contract that could be or could be not manifested, depending upon what happens when you get to the planet at the wind of birth. That's one you often make up as you go in and choose your parents. Many right now are choosing the same parental DNA. They're coming back as another generation in the same family. 
And what this means is that some of you moms and dads are very quiet about what you suspect. <laughs> that your parents are your grandchildren. And you see it in their eyes. And every once in a while when they're young, they'll look at you and say something. And you'll know that's true. Because <laughs> they're saying things they're not supposed to know. This is how profound the difference is today coming into the planet as it was in the days of karma when there was an old type of push and pull energy that pushed you into and, and pulled you out. The energy of completion, that's not what this is about anymore. You watch others go into that wind of birth, into the families that they have chosen, the cultures they've chosen, the groups they've chosen. You watch the few who know this is the life where they'll change gender. And they know what that's going to be like. And that's going to be a difficult life for a little while, only for a little while. They know what it means because they've done it before. You've all done it before. There's a lot of backslapping that goes on at the window birth. That's the best thing I can tell you of how this feels as a soul coming in, knowing that in a moment, everything spectacular and knowing will go away. And in that the wind of birth, you're taken down to the basics. There's nothing wrong with a corporeal body, but dear ones, low consciousness is so dark from where you've been. There are things happening on this planet right now, multiple things to change the energy of the wind of birth. And I'm going to close with this because I'm not quite finished and I'll continue tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to talk about how it feels to awaken from this. What are some of the attributes that push and pull the awakening of this? If you come in with full equipment. Let's say to come in with, with with a ton of things in your soul. They don't weigh a thing, but that's what it that's what it, it's like with, a, with libraries full of things. And then I tell you, you're on book one, page three. That's that's who you are. Humanity. But suddenly in this new energy, the library starts to show. And at that wind of birth, what those right now who are coming in today, right now, over and over, right now at the wind of birth, who are listening to this and smiling, they know something. And I want to tell you something about what they know. That when they arrive on this planet and start to grow up, almost immediately they're going to remember things they never remembered before because evolution is starting to happen in consciousness. Some of them are going to walk early. Some of them are going to read without teaching. You're going to start remembering the things that you did before and move on quickly. But most the wisdom, they'll know who they are. At some level, they know they're an old soul. At some level, they're starting to be interested right away in esoteric things instead of waiting until they're 40. You've met some of these. There are young people walking on this earth right now who are very interested in who they are. 
They're moving in the circles of what young people do, listening to their own music. They have their own habits and looks, but I'll tell you that they're very interested in esoteric things. They've made some interesting decisions not to go to church, not to have children for a while. They're looking at things that you never looked at that way. Perhaps your children never looked at it that way. These are the new human beings starting to act differently, socialize differently, come to meetings like this differently. That's who they are. It's happening now, right now. It's going to happen with you as well. Old souls will pick up where they left off. You will not have to learn all this again. And that means that all the mistakes you've made, you'll never make again. When you come back fresh, young, ready to go and wise, it's a different life, dear ones. And that should make a difference to those of you who said, I'm never coming back. Yes, you are. <clears throat> Oh, yes, you are. But fresh and new and with the wisdom. Right now, I'll tell you how you're feeling, old soul. You're tired. You're tired of battling the old energy for all these years. Now you go into another kind of battle and that's called change. You're tired. Live your years. But when you come back at that window birth, I want you to hear my words again, and you will. When I say you're going to have a smile on your face and you're going to say, is it my turn? Is it my turn? Is it my turn? Is it my turn? You want to come back because you know this is going to be fun. What you know is spectacular and you've never ever been born with this kind of consciousness remembrance before ever. You'll go right to that which is compassionate and makes sense. You will epitomize and define new human nature. That's who you are. That's the wind of birth. There's more. All the things that you might suspect that, that you always wondered about. At the wind of birth, that is where the decisions in the now are made about families and groups and genders. Not some other time. You cannot say right now, I'm coming back as. And the only differences are when that is going to be something that's going to change the planet and you know it. There are a few who know what they're going to do when they get here. Who know where they're going because it's part of an extension of now and what they're doing. You're in training for what's coming. Not all, but some. So it is complex, is it not? That which takes place in a reality that you cannot imagine, that you cannot extend your mind to believe. And all these metaphors we've given you are so you can see it kind of in your mind's eye, kind of. But I don't want anybody to miss this. It's not an apparatus or system. It's magnificent. It drips with the love of God. All of you know at that point in time that you will lose that which is magnificence in your memory and you'll have to come to the earth 
and discover it. I tell you these things, whether you believe them or not, because I want to point out how magnificent you are and what goes into you, every single one coming to the planet. And how you look at things, perhaps, even while you're here and wonder how they happened or why me or why now. And you start to recognize and realize there's purpose for everything. The wisdom of the old soul will look around and understand and realize some of the things going on on a bigger picture of this planet and world are to prepare it for you coming back. But some of the things that seem unusually dysfunctional that might be happening now are on purpose. That sometimes it takes dysfunction to find out what function should be, especially when the new functionality is going to be a new paradigm. You cannot break paradigms easily. They don't flow into either each other. They never have. You know that. Especially behavior. And so whether it's corporate or politic, or whether it's parenting or teaching, there are new paradigms afoot for all of that. All of that. Some will break before they restart. Some won't have to. We've talked about this talked about an integration of one paradigm into another and so slow change is possible it is but not for all that's what's going on that should explain some of the things you see now that worry you or that you look at and say i don't believe what's happening it can't be good oh yes it can if you look at it from the perspective of an old soul who's here many, many times and will be here many, many times, it's just right on schedules. Because the new paradigms that will result from the dysfunction today will be needed for the new earth. Old soul, this is why you're here. This is why you're listening. This is the new human. All of these things, again, I tell you, so that you'll be aware of the care that goes into you. I hope your self-worth has been bolstered just a little by the knowledge of that peace of God in you being part of the whole. You know what God looks at you and sees? God sees God. More than children of God, part of God. That's who you are. And so it is. Om Shiva. We are all servants of peace, everyone.
Greetings, Mother. In the <laughs> Greetings. Thank you. Yes, we are all children of Ra. Greetings. In, in the, the light, light of, of the, the most radiant, radiant one, in the office of the Christ, and only in the office of the Christ, we invoke the loving energies of Saint Germain and Violet Flame. We ask at this time, Mother. The summer is upon us very soon. That uh, you get a cool breeze every now and then. <laughs> that that cool breeze carries the winds of change for the highest good of all. That uh, hearts open beyond anything imagined. And that all suffering is canceled. <laughs> well, as the Buddha says, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. I mean, I got from uh, from the meditation here uh, that these are kind of leaving now, the old paradigm and joy and Compassion and mercy and love and dignity and hope are here. I pass the talking stick to you, Mother. Greeting, children of Ra. Yes, the time has passed. These old souls that are going to take a break from this sector of the galaxy. They are being given a break, if you will. Time to reflect upon the eons of time when we decided to play Masters of the Universe. Things went a little awry, so to speak. Now it's all come full circle that chalice in the heart what Patty talking about bringing in immortality right here right now we got the gifts we got the power to change this today. <sighs> it is free will choice within the laws of the one. 
to do what thy will be done. It is quite easy to drop it all. Drop the karma. We're in a new reality. Yes, we are very old souls. And hmm, how many times around the circle we've done this? We don't have the numbers. This time, we're doing it right. This is why we're here, along with all the rest of us. Takes all of us to do this. No matter what may have occurred in any space-time continuum, let it go. All we have is this now moment. This is what's being brought forth by the force in of itself saying you want to ascend come into this now moment expand it in infinitely so is easier said then done. Yet it is about moving the particles, the molecules, arranging them in how you know your particular set of DNA is arranged. All the wisdom there, like Cryon said, each one of us has all the Akashic records mm -hmm. of our entire moment we came in, in that flash of light. It's high time we learn what our records are ready to show us. It's a learning curve because like Master Yoda says, you must 
unlearn everything, begin again. <coughs> it sounds easy enough. And at the same moment, Gotta just let it all go and listen to the oneness, no matter what's going on. And the body might make it so that all you have in front of you is this now moment to. Just change it for right now. Lots of stuff happening around the solar system, local galaxies. It is this. Time. Mother, what's this dog and pony show to keep this war going on? Oh, this. <gasps> it's not funny. That is another slice of the reality that is an alternate timeline that is old and Everybody can see. It's just like it's it's not real, Mother. Yes. It is a hard deck program. Yet it is real. Yes, it is real. And how People we are change it. How we change it. Not step into the fray. <sighs> like Neo, you must learn how to move with the energies and the objects move around you. No need to engage. Use the force to move the frequencies out of the way. As you think it, therefore it is. You use every fiber of your being in this now moment to move the energies out of your space-time continuum. All of what we're watching seemingly hmm not sure how to describe the current 
fictitious timeline that is being discussed. Mm. It is about the Empire holding on in a death grip because mm, not wanting to lose face and mm, it matters not whether you have egg on your face or not. At a certain point, the energies get so much so you gotta surrender and it changes. They are desperately playing out their last moments in the sun. Send them more love. We have no words to describe what's going on except one word Koyanaskatsi life out of balance how we put it in balance it starts in here drink from that cup the grail Patty talked about this chalice want to be immortal we drink from that cup it's how we create the magic We often say we like green tea, hot, hot, <laughs> jasmine, mind you. Oh, gray is all right at times. Mm -hmm. We like jasmine green tea. The captain is a little different in his taste. <laughs> well, this one's getting ready to take that chair somewhere around here. Yes. It's about this oneness that's mm -hmm. happening. Gotta just send more love to all the situations. <laughs> hey, you want to play? Putin's storing nukes in Belarus. Oh, well, else. Our fake Putin, that is. <laughs> Where else are they going to put them? Oh, man. How about in the incinerator? 
which is called the sun. <coughs> Best nuclear power plant going. Fusion. Yeah, not fusion. Fusion. Right. We are a reflection of that sun. Sons and daughters of the Most High. Plasma. Same stuff. Solar flares. Plasma <gasps> in the body. Hemoglobin. Blood. The gold dust. All the answers lie within this living temple of oneness and we play games with our consciousness hmm. getting lost in the Maya <laughs> it is entertaining at times otherwise hmm it is much more beneficial to focus on ascension than to get lost in the dream world here of the matrix. That's all it is. Yet the safety protocols are off in the hollow deck. And folks do go over the rainbow. It is about our choices we make according to what we have designed to the nth degree. How we're going to do this mission. And it would be in our best interest to let go of the Maya, focus on the ascension. And we know the time is late. We better be on our way. Thank you, Mother. It's been a joy. Great And the light. And the light. Of oh, the, the most, most radiant one. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Oh, nice. Focus on that full moon coming in. <coughs> it's a good one. It is a good one, Mother. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Adonis, Sabayon. Adonai Basu, Baragas, Namaste, Mother.
Thou mother, <laughs> Rama, coming. Hello. There you are. Mm. Hello, Rama. Hello. Where have you been? Mm. Oh, I have been on Lady Master Athena's ship. Mm. One of the uh, healing arboretums, lots of pink and blue and soft pastel colors and tons and tons of lilac. The lilac smell is a bit, uh, it can get you dizzy. It's a bit overwhelming. But it is uh, awesome to behold. <laughs> you were smelling lilac bushes. I don't see any around here, though. I was in a healing arboretum on oh. Lady Master Athena's ship. Just some reason I was called there to just sit and smell lilac. <laughs> well, here we go. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> That's a wonderful smell. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's just stay in the oneness. That's that's the message. <laughs> We're going to do something a little different tonight. We're going to let that... Uh, um, let the news new energy. Go. Yeah, let the news go and let the new energy... This is called Designing and Building a Regenerative, Restorative, and Just World. One building at a time. And this is with um, Dinana. Diana Van Buren, Jason, Jason McLennan, and McClellan. Don, Don Danby. <laughs> And it's an hour and a half, so we're going to get started. But this is where we're planning now for the new earth and all of the ideas that are in our collective consciousness to manifest a new earth here. This is the time we're doing something about it. So let's just get started. It's coming. So pleased to be here this afternoon with all of you back at Bioneers. It's such a joy to be here and also to be here to host this conversation with these two remarkable characters. Um, part of what we want to talk about today is the world of the built environment and, um, and architecture practice. But in a lot of ways, the work that each of, um, each of the, our speakers today uh, have done is 
catalytic in terms of really working on change and transformation beyond just you know the problems of uh, problems that need to be solved in terms of just architecture, just building buildings. That there's an opportunity, really, to to look at and contend with what I've um, heard uh, Deanna and Garen here talk about as you know the built environment is is in some ways and I'm paraphrasing you know an ex- a a mirror of or an expression of the values in society, and that can be extraordinarily beautiful. And that also can can be an expression of repression and um, and you know extraordinarily difficult problems of colonization um, and extractive capitalism, right? And that we see that the, both those expressions in the built environment. What we're hoping to bring forth is um, more broadly than just buildings. Is societies and cultures that are just. Um, and that are in harmony with ecological systems, and that those things are not separate. And so the work that each of them have done uh, is really working to catalyze those transformations through the practice of, um, of architecture. So we're going to spend some time talking about that today. And, um, you know, in lieu of reading your bios, uh, I'm going to maybe introduce each of you and, and invite you each to, to add to my understanding. So we'll start um, with Deanna Van Buren. Um, and you are, you've started the studio design, Designing Justice, Designing Spaces in, uh, in Oakland, California, um, and started it in 2011, I believe, but based on work that you've been doing and that she'd been doing for, um, for years in terms of really trying to bring uh, the work of restorative justice into um, into architecture, and what I am really, you know, was very moved by by hearing you speak in the past and some of the work that you've done around um, having worked in the traditional architecture industry and working on uh, luxury buildings and all kinds of sort of standard forms of architecture, where a lot of the money for the built environment goes, and um, and so having having done that work that it did not resonate deeply in terms of how architecture really could be of service to people, um, not just the very wealthy, but to all people. Um, and so, you know, in the last, not just the last 10 years since you began that, but uh, but probably like the last 15, you've really crafted and honed, honed your craft around um, working to bring a sort of justice into the built environment, into the process of how architecture is um, is made and programmed. So not just the buildings themselves, but how those buildings come about um, is, is one of the key threads. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your history and just riff with me a little bit on, on what brings you here? Sure, Don. I mean, I grew up in Virginia, right? So from a little bit, I grew up in the recently desegregated South, right? So that's the context from which I'm coming from. Growing up in the 70s, uh, desegregating a white community, you know, being taught that justice was not for me as a black woman to stay out of it, stay away from it. Uh, so that was in my background. I didn't know any architects. I, I just knew that's what I wanted to be. It was super obvious. Um, and so when, after my illustrious career designing luxury shopping malls, uh, and I decided to jump ship, right, to do this work uh, when I heard about restorative justice. And I, I believe you all know Angela Davis, Fanya Davis, her sister, right, who got up on stage, started talking to me about this other form of justice that was about repair, that was an indigenous form of justice that was reignited, being reignited all over the world. 
uh, where it was about repairing harm and breach of relationship and people coming together and truth and reconciliation courts and victim offender mediation and family group conferencing and that it was being ignited. I was like, well, I want to design for that kind of justice, right? That justice is for me. And so that's what Designing Justice, Designing Spaces started with, right? Designing Spaces for Restorative Justice, Designing Spaces for a Form of Justice that really speaks to our highest capacity as human beings to heal and repair from harm. Um, and that architects, designers have a role to play in manifesting alternative futures and cultures. And so it grew from there. Because you can't just do restorative justice if you want to do something like end mass incarceration, which is what my organization is focused on doing. We are an abolitionist organization. We want to see a world without prisons and jails and detention centers and courthouses and police stations and the whole ecosystem of a structurally racist system that we built, that architects have participated in constructing. It's very expensive. All your tax dollars pay for that stuff. And what do we need to build instead? And what we come now to, we need to actually create an ecosystem of care. Restorative justice is one of those spaces. But we have a whole glossary of new prototypes and new spaces that we need to make. Um, and that's not the end. So I need you all to work with me to come up with another million of them because we have to make new stuff in a new kind of way, which I think is what you were asking about and that the way that we practice is we deeply engage communities in the development and creation of these spaces like I, I don't know what a peacemaking center looks like like how can I make that by myself so we would engage folks right in an actual process of of peacemaking but in the agency of creating a space and environment that would reflect that and we did do that right we did that in Syracuse New York we made a peacemaking center um using circles, right? Sitting in circle together. I called it the peacemaking palette. And we were able to extract from that. Well, that's not a good word. I like to say code and analyze the data. People love to use data. That makes it all real, right? If you're being all woo-woo and want to make peacemaking centers, you have to use language like we're coding and analyzing the data. But we used it basically to make a peacemaking center. Uh, and we continue to do that, right? We work with formerly incarcerated people. We work with currently incarcerated people and their ecosystem and their families and communities of care to imagine what kind of infrastructure do we need to build uh, to repair harm. Mm -hmm. And uh, we teach them, right? We co-learn together. Right? We teach people about design. I think it's innate. I actually think people's understanding of the built environment is innate. People know it. If you give them the tools to imagine, radically imagine, uh, they can come up with incredible things and lead that on their own. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Deanna. Well, you know, I want to pull in on that, that question of, of care and, uh, and relationality. So we, we've talked about that. This is Jason McLennan, and, and many of you uh, may have heard him speak this morning. So um, in lieu of reading a, a lengthy bio for either of you, but, uh, but for you, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of having known Jason um, for a long time, maybe 20 years. And, um, and you know, during that time, have watched, uh, watched him evolve his practice and grow, um, grow what he's doing, not just in terms of, of uh, having a design practice, but also catalyzing many other designers worldwide to set a much higher bar for green building, for what we kind of refer to sometimes as green building. Um, and as a, you know, as a pioneer in that, in that space over the last, I shouldn't use that term pioneer, it's a completely wrong metaphor, but anyway, as a, as, as a leader in the, in the space of, of bringing back um, 
a degree of, of thoughtfulness and care and place-based consideration um, into the architecture practice and industry, which is the default is so extractive. You've spent many years now really setting higher standards, working with others to create standards um, to catalyze many, many other buildings that, um, that, you know, all over the world. And one of, one of the things that, um, that we've been talking about that you talked about this morning had to do with, you know, the, how in so many ways, you know, we can talk about green building purely from a technocratic materials lens, and a lot of time, that's, that's what it looks like. It's that people are focused on the, the carbon emissions. They're looking at the specifics of particular elements of the design, the physicality of the design, as opposed to what the effects of that might be on the people, how, how much of it is actually there in place. And that is so much of the work that, that you've, been, you've been catalyzing um, in many ways. So do you, you want to build on that a little bit and tell us a little bit more? And then we will, we will then begin, begin to weave and, and, and talk a bit. But I, I, want to, I want to also make sure that we, that we talk about um, the aspect of the work that, you, that you've done that isn't just about the ecological, but how the ecological and the, uh, and the human systems are interlinked and inseparable. Well, I'm enjoying hearing you talk about it more than hearing myself talk about it. Uh, but, and I already spoke earlier today, but um, I'm delighted to be to be here and especially to have an opportunity to get to know you better and learn about your work. Um, my focus, of course, yeah, has been on primarily the environmental impact of the decisions we make around buildings, but you can't, you can't get into that in any authentic way and not understand that it's about people as well. And so the deeper you get into regeneration, the more you realize that the barriers to change, the barriers to to regeneration are all in in between our ears and the way we think and the stories that we tell ourselves. And that's been a real theme here today as well. Um, and, you know, so the, the ironic thing is that I talk about living buildings, but our buildings are not actually alive. They're actually more like it's not the dam, it's the beaver that, that is the hydrologist. It's not the it's not the building, it's the people in the buildings. But our buildings are these sort of manifestations of our values, as you were saying, as a, you know the the things that we believe are important, our needs, our, our our desires, and they're the biggest things that humans build. Our big buildings and cities, so they take the most stuff, and they have the biggest legacies and the biggest impacts of the of the you know non living things that we're surrounded by. So it's where a lot of the action is, but it's also not the action. And I think a lot of architects over overstate the importance of architecture and a lot of other disciplines misunderstand or underplay how important architecture is as a, as a form uh, giver for our, our values and, and, and so many things. So I think that this next evolution of green building uh, as it were is needs to actually get even broader than it's been. when I, when I started uh, the LBC, um, and I looked around at LEED, I looked around at programs. It always amazed me that there was almost nothing on human health. Mm -hmm. Originally, in the programs was a little bit on indoor air quality, and there's nothing on equity. And, and, and so, you know, the first equity 
criteria ever in a green building program that I could see in a meaningful way around the world was the Living Building Challenge. And we were, I was shocked that how could, how could this be the first? It's like, what, you know, what's wrong with us? And uh, we weren't experts in how to do that. We still aren't. But um, this needs to be a much broader discussion than, mm -hmm. than, than we've been having. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to here, to, the, to this conversation today, <laughs> exactly. Because one, uh, one of the things that's so tricky about equity in a very like measured, technocratic kind of space is that it's, it's not... Um, you can't stick an equity sensor in the wall and kind of be like, here's, you know, the way that you can do it with CO2 monitors and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, you know, I'd love maybe for, for you to tell us a little bit more, Deanna, about um, some of the work. Maybe, you know, tell us about one of the, one of the projects, like, because we're talking about these, these questions of, of equity and, um, and how they kind of find form in particular projects that you've worked on. Um, we've talked about some of, the, some of the things that you've done in Syracuse that brought you to, to the work, perhaps. Yeah, you can talk about Detroit. I'm also reminded yeah. just from what you just said, Jason, the sort of broader piece some of the lens through which we're looking at our work is are using the vital conditions of well-being. I don't know if you all have looked at that framework. Uh, and also social determinants of health as a way to start to plug into that ecosystem of thinking. Um, but in Detroit, the project we have there, so we are also real estate developers, right? So we're architects and developers. And so we, we got our first project in Detroit. We bought 12 parcels of land in a black community that had been decimated by all the industry leaving, uprisings at that time. There's nothing there. Uh, we started a catalytic project there called the Love Building, which is under construction. It will be open later this year. It will be the most, not the most sustainable environmentally, but it will be the most accessible building in the country mm -hmm. for folks with disabilities. So that would be great. That is also part of sustainability. Um, but the, we've been engaging the community, right? Throughout this time, we started our Designers on Deck program where we train local community members, in this case, systems impacted people who are from the community uh, to lead the community engagement on the ground. We're doing pop-up to permanent, but we were also able to work with biomimicry for social innovation. I remembered it, right? So we bring them in early we do workshops with the community where we, some of the workshops were talking about the environmental sustainability goals of the project, but also the uses and the things that they need. Like folks don't need your social service provider, right? So the project will have a restorative justice center that will bring all the restorative justice practitioners in the city together to amplify that as a use. They'll have a, a theater that shows uh, underrepresented uh demographics in the theater. Uh, we'll have a worker-owned factory where folks are getting trained in the vertical sewing industry, so we're stored economics piece into the project. So we're always looking at the economics piece of it, the justice piece of it, getting people daily needs, yes, the environmental piece, all kind of coming together. And I think that, you know, we have a concept, we're looking for co-developers, we're raising money, we're doing all the financing, but those are the kind of restorative reinvestments that black communities need who have suffered from mass incarceration, suffered from centuries of oppression, and the building has got to be regenerative, right? These are the communities that need it more than anybody does. Uh, so that is the goal, right? These are the kinds of, so we don't invest in the criminal justice system. You don't need to build a 300 million jail, which we did actually fight the building of that in Detroit. We lost, we, we will keep fighting. Um, and invest in projects like this, right? And, and we're struggling, like, how to finance them. I'll be transparent. Like, how do we pay for that, right? We want to collect rainwater on the site. We want to do a lot of things. We want to get solar. We designed it to do that. 
how do we get that all paid for uh, when the performance is not stacking up as it is, right? Can we get, you know, so it's it's challenging. It's challenging for us. Mm-hmm. Sarah, we're not a now. Right? We're not a, a deep-pocketed real estate developer. We're, we're, we're little junior developers trying to do big things. Yeah, it's one of the things that, that we talk about and that is really challenging here is, is that we know now, right? I mean, there's so many beautiful demonstration projects of green buildings, living buildings um, in so many ways, but the accessibility to those buildings and to those, um, that, that type of access to knowledge uh, is still a limitation, right, Jason? I mean, it's like, how do how do you see even more of um, of what this this community has catalyzed? Um, you, I don't know if you have answers to that. Well, I want to know examples. if I can help. I mean, let me know if I can help. <laughs> yes, now that you we're, can. We're meeting Jason. each other. <laughs> can that's what I thought. I was like, believe a little vortex, so you're in trouble. There are some, there are some tricks, uh, there are some tricks we've learned that over the years of how to make things affordable, that yes. people start out thinking it's not affordable. Right. And, you know, buildings are expensive things. I mean, they, they just are. And so there's a decision around where you spend your money. And um, and sometimes there's trade-offs that can be made that maybe don't seem like trade-offs at the time, but actually can be benefits when, when they're recast a different way. Um, and there's different types. You know, certainly there's a lot of projects we're doing now um, where we're getting solar on projects and there's zero capital cost because it's getting financed by basically a power purchase agreement where you're going to have an energy bill. So, you know, you, you finance it through that. And then, you know, that's one example um, that might be an option to get it at zero um, and lock in a rate that, that may be beneficial over the long term. In addition, it's, of course, it's always better to have no energy bill and own your own solar, but, but that capital cost is, is real then, um, even though it's smaller than it used to be. So, but there's, there's some tricks and, and maybe we can downsize the mechanical system and, and, uh, make the building more efficient and more healthy in other ways instead. So, yeah, we can help. But, uh, I mean, I think to me, uh, any budget you can, you can be greener than you are. You know, there's always something you can do. Certainly it's always easy to do. Uh, even though people with money often spend their money on something else anyway, you know, uh, but uh, there's always something that you can do. And we've certainly done very modest, uh, economically very modest projects that have real high performance. And then we've also done obviously ones that are much better funded. Mm-hmm. And it's not that one, and that's not necessarily always easier. There's all sort of different baggage. It's just different baggage, different hurdles that come up depending on the project type. Um, so anyway, yeah, I'll, I'll help. Don't <laughs> <laughs> be on camera. I'm saying that. <laughs> you need to tell me all your tricks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Well, I mean, I think this is you know, it's, it's trying to deal with that false binary of that's right, um, right? Because there's been this kind of um, many, many years of now, right, twenty, thirty years of kind of this of a broader awareness of green building with less awareness of, of the, the practice of the kind of design that, that, uh, that your studio has been doing. You know, I, I mean, and arguably both, both of these streams, both of these practices are fundamental to human architecture going back millennia. It's only kind of a curious blip in the, in the last few centuries where we're like, no, we'll just build the same building everywhere and then we'll just throw fossil fuels at it and it'll be great. Um, so we're, you know, we're dealing with a, with a curious historical anomaly and trying to correct that. Um, 
but I, you know, I'd love to hear hear more about um, the work that uh, that you're doing, particularly with with the co-design work. Because you, you mentioned it really briefly, and I and I thought actually this was was fascinating um, about how you're working with community members to really give them some of the basic. Um, design skills, in effect, in effect, not expecting them to become design professionals, but be conversant enough to be able to advocate for themselves, for the for the buildings, for the spaces that they're going to be inhabiting, programming, and, and carrying forward. Yeah, that's been really important. We've always kind of done it that way. We just got better at it. You know, most people in the communities we serve, and, and maybe many people in your communities, they don't, they never met an architect before. They saw a doctor, they've definitely seen a lawyer, but they've never met an architect. Um, and so what does that tell you? There's something wrong with that picture. So I think uh, a lot of what we have to do is, A, get out there, right? Be with people, but also show them and teach them the tools that we have. Like it's architecture is hard, but there's some parts of it that are not rocket scientists, you know, rocket science. So, you know, for example, we have something called the space planning and finance game, right? So we use the bubbles, right? Diagramming on plans. They can pick that we have a whole buffet of colored bubbles and they can pick whatever use that they want around a prompt. What do I want to see in my community? What do I need to thrive in my community? And like, oh, I want this daycare and I want the grocery store and the like, bring all the things. We have the plans on the table. They'll put those spaces on there. We'll help them organize them, help them understand adjacencies. Actually probably want that over here because you're gonna drop the kids off. You know, So we actually are in dialogue with their ideas. Then we give them a bunch of chips, like poker chips and dice. They roll the dice. They get chips. The amount of chips they get are based on different financing streams. They have to pay, figure out how they're going to pay for their idea. Um, and I've seen people go crazy. Like, I need more chips. I need more chips. Oh, they don't have no more chips. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so it's fun, right? It's, and they learn about financing. They learn about architecture, right? We build models with people, sometimes full-size models, you know? And so I think that they're learning about how it works, what are the considerations, uh, and really contributing in a very meaningful way for us, right? So we're getting information for the design. They're learning about what we know. They're bringing their expertise from community, just to expertise exchange, right, mm-hmm. through that creative process. And what has also, I found, is that the creative process of design actually helps people process trauma. I've seen them do it. I've seen them both shift from a rigid mindset, right, this is how it has to be done, into what's called elastic thinking, right? So they're opened up to new ideas, and I've seen people process trauma. That That's something I had to get a little better prepared for, right? Tears, right? People moving into that. So the imagining of alternative futures is one way people can actually begin to heal, and that is not something I ever thought architecture could do or would do, but it's that process that enabled that to happen. Mm-hmm. And so it's very powerful to practice that way. Yeah, amazing. Mm. Amazing. Um, and, and a lot of those those practices then also get carried forward in, and hosted in the buildings that you're um, one of the practices that related work around peacemaking circles and restorative justice processes in, in, in these spaces. If they're meant for that. And then, I, you know, what's interesting, when you create space for restorative justice, it actually expands, right? So the Syracuse Peacemaking Center was meant to bring Native 
American peacemaking practices, Navajo specifically, into a non-Native community for the very first time in the United States. So elders in the community were trained to moderate uh, quality of life climbs. So like you stole my car, I stole my purse, da da da. But what's happened is because we designed it with the community, including the acquisition and location, location matters, uh, it has now become actually a community center. They're running war circles. The school is attending their most difficult cases. People are having their engagement parties there, their baby showers there. The kids come around all the time to hang out. Like it's just become so much more that the peacemaking process was its initiating, but actually peace and safety gets created through social cohesion and relationship. And that is what that place is doing in the community. Now, it's not just the place. It's obviously the programs and all those things, but the place is a significant component of that. And and that's uh, so exciting to see. I was just there, I got on Monday. <laughs> and that that's also now... Ten years on, you've been working. It's, it's five years. Five so years it's been up and running five years. They're at capacity. They need more space. They want to do another one. So it's good. It's good. It's growing. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to go raise some money to grow it. Okay. Um, anyone here who actually can can contribute to that, please <laughs> take it. Let's take it. Take it. Um, one of the things that I mean, I keep coming back to is because of this work of healing on so many levels um, of all forms of, of incarceration, whether that's of ecological systems, um, of rivers, of, of mycelial networks, of people in communities inside and, and rolling through the carceral system, that dealing with this cannot be done one project at a time, one um, you know, one beautiful building at a time. But there's so much that is clear, as as I'm talking to both of you, that you're setting systems, you're setting the conditions for things to then happen. And, um, you know, Jason, we were talking a little bit about um, some of the work that was done in um, Aotearoa in New Zealand that was not the work of your studio per se, sure. but... Um, but it was work that was done that, because it was through the context of the living building um, standards and structure, that it enabled communities there to be able to then communicate with the industries, to be able to, to, to reflect what they what they needed. Can you tell us a little bit more about that project? Yeah, no, I, and I showed um, the project earlier this morning um, that uh, is on the North Island, um, and uh, it's... Uh, it's a fascinating project, fascinating place, and if anyone's ever interested in learning more, there's a feature-length documentary on the project called Ever the Land. It's a few years old now, but it's really fascinating, and it talks uh, primarily about how uh, this community began to uh, come together and how reconciliation changed the community, and the building, again, is this sort of uh, backdrop or form giver. It's not the story it's but it provides space for a story and it's a thing that 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 you can use as a as a device right and that's essentially what you're saying as well and so i you know um early on when i launched the living building challenge uh, i launched it in 2000 wrote it in 2005 primarily launched it in 2006 and um not that long after i got invited to speak in uh, new zealand and australia and so I went and did this multi-city thing, and 
here's what a living building is, and, and did, you know, talked about it all. And um, for whatever reason, there was a group in the crowd in New Zealand that it really resonated with uh, a bunch of architects, and they started talking about it as as how this was a framework that was beginning to make sense for them. And they had just been asked uh, to design uh, with the Tuhoi this new amazing facility, and they shared it with um, they shared it with the, with the, the the chief and 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 members of, of of the clan, and they resonated with it immediately and said, "Oh, this is this is another way of saying what we believe," and it became then a really useful tool for the architects and engineers and builders and and the Tuhoi to talk about the values and the goals and the vision for what success would look like if they could build a building that would embody who they were in their relationship to the land. And so that was really kind of cool. <laughs> and uh, and so, yeah, the living building became a rallying cry. Uh, and, it, it, you, you know, the whole community um, got involved, literally. I mean, they made earth blocks. The community made earth blocks together. And there's some great photos sometimes I show of people from, you know, from the Tuoi making earth blocks that were the walls of the facility. And you had that happening as well as you had a lot of sort of big glue laminated timbers from New Zealand forests that were brought in with, you know, big equipment. So it was this high tech, low tech sort of, you know, way, centuries old way of doing things and modern ways of doing things coming together. And, uh, and it was, it actually was the first living building in, in the country, mm-hmm. um, which is great. Now there's several other living buildings in New Zealand and it's, there's a whole group there that, that does the stuff. And, um, it, yeah, it's, it was inspiring to be part of that just mm-hmm. to play kind of a troublemaker role, as I call it, to put a seed out there and then see something grow. Mm-hmm. And we brought, uh, the chief, uh, Kirsty Luke, uh, to, uh, uh, to Portland, for Living Future, one of our conferences, and it was great to to hear from her about how it's all been transformational for them. So, yeah, and I mean, you, Dan, you were you were familiar with some of that same work over there, right? There was like a, there's a kind of a thread and connection to restorative justice as it and uh, and various forms of reconciliation, so-called processes around the world that that you kind of found yourself in the slipstream. Yeah. I also married a New Zealander, so that kind of made it <laughs> part of my life. Mm-hmm. And also started to connect to Maori people there, learning about how restorative justice was being united in that country. I think they have no youth incarcerated at all, unlike our country, mm-hmm. you know, because they use restorative justice and, and the, it was the Maori people who really catalyzed that, yep. led that, and then the rest of the country listened to them and started to adopt it. So uh, oh, it's really one of my inspirations was seeing the change. So when they first invited me over there, um, I would say that that New Zealand um, was uh, just beginning this journey. Um, I mean, it was not they were they were working on it, and that wasn't that long ago. Like it's really not that long ago. And then when I went back about a decade later. I was shocked in a good way at how you had all these Caucasian people speaking the Maori language in meetings. And it was like, I'm not saying that they've figured this out, but they are figuring it out. And I hadn't seen that anywhere. And I, and to just a decade apart to go and understand that there was changes afoot. And then of course, there's been other great things that have happened in New Zealand uh, as well since then. But uh, anyway, I just, 
I find that inspiring. Mm-hmm, yeah, one of the, one of the other things I'm curious about too is like there's a there's a, a piece of this where we're talking about how to engage people in communities to talk about what they need, and then there's a piece around, particularly around kind of more maybe it's esoteric ideas around architecture or sustainability that don't necessarily show up in what people ask for. Right. I mean, our, our studio is doing a lot of work right now in Los Angeles and the Los Angeles basin looking at water. Right. And how you deal with water in, when, the, when the rivers have been themselves sealed and incarcerated and, and that the systems have been broken um, involves having to engage community members on these ideas and, and help them understand it to a degree so that they can advocate for something different. And I'm, I'm curious about about that from uh, from you know you're, you're speaking to it in the context of um, of what people need in terms of justice, and I'm curious about how how do you invite people to speak for or advocate for the environmental justice aspects of things for for more um, ecological function in their communities and to see that as related to their their day to day needs. Because a lot of the time, climate can be climate, for example, can be seen as like this is a very big planetary thing. It's not something that relates to me in my community. But if you're working in urban California, you're dealing with heat. You're dealing, that, dealing with that in a lot of places. It, it's deeply tied to human experience. And I'm wondering how to help ad, help people advocate, or how can design help advocate? You know, I, I would just say that we try to find people who already are doing the thing a little bit and then bring us to that because I can't like we don't have capacity to iron out wear you down convince you look then you do the thing like where's there a spark already for example we're working in uh, about to work in Milwaukee right and most highly incarcerated zip code in the country we went there they already have actually a community group doing stormwater projects and management local community members get trained in it they do those projects they're already they're getting their own internet set up they're trying to get their own solar so they're already kind of doing it this is you know and this is a very low-income community that has started so that we can come in and do a project that takes those things they're already doing and amplify them at the scale of the building and begin to advocate together with them, right? So don't listen to me. Listen to this brother who, like, is doing the thing. You know what I mean? Like, we don't need to be the advocates all the time. Communities are doing this work, even if it's on a tiny scale. They can advocate. You can support them in advocating. It can amplify. Right? So we work with a lot of community organizers, whether they be in climate justice or, you know, criminal justice, right? And we can support them with the technical expertise that we have. Yeah. And so that's easier. <laughs> yeah. One of the, uh, one of the things that, that I know both of you were talking about today a little bit was, um, just this, this question. I think that the, um, the thing that you said, Jason was, you know, cultural and personal healing are essential to regenerating the planet, right? How, in what way can you, or can you tell us a little bit more about how you see the, the kind of inner transformation or cultural transformation, how that, how essential that is. Well, geez, it's such a big, it's such a big subject. Um, And and it's hard, (laughs) and that's part of the problem is that it's a huge subject. I mean, um, but it, but it, but it's become clear to me again, that that our work on just sort of left brain issues Mm -hmm. doesn't get, doesn't, doesn't get us there. The science, as I said, is not enough. Mm -hmm. And we have to figure out, how to um, 
how to change the, the, the mental models, the stories. It's you know what Bioneers is all about, in fact, and why I why I love Bioneers so much is because that that is what this is about. This is about convening a whole host of people around a whole host of issues to think differently because we have this sort of problem of these sort of institutionalized stories that we have bought into consciously, subconsciously, um, that are the real barriers. The hardest change, the hardest barriers that we have found to to doing regenerative projects, to doing living buildings, in the end, are not technological, they're not economic, they're not educational, like know-how based. We, you know, it, it's, it has been the resistance that we face from, uh, from people mm-hmm. and attitudes and inertia Mm-hmm. of, well, that's not how we do it here, or that's not how we did it last time, or I don't know if you can do that, I'm afraid to do that, and all and all the excuses. And so that, and, 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 and you know, there's just this inaction that happens. Yeah. And so we spend most of our time, ironically, I spend most of my time being a bloody psychologist rather than an art a designer because it's like to try to break through uh, to get change to happen this has really been this study of like what motivates people, what stops them from making big paradigm leaps and and it is it's exactly as the last speakers were talking about it's fear and and it's a closing of the human heart and whether we're talking about healing communities and, and talking about uh, restorative justice towards uh, towards a, a group of people or all people, I would say to the whole planet. You know, it's these—it's this closing of the heart. The othering, as 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 John was saying, is a real deep-rooted problem, and it's different, as as he was saying as well. In different countries having practiced all over the world, it's a sort of different set of issues. It's the same fundamental problem, but with a different uh, layer and different history, different context. Yeah. And in this country, I'm not—I'm not American. Um, so it's interesting as a non-American to observe the uh, zeitgeist in this country. This in this country, there's so much unsaid. There's so much baggage around, you know, the history and uh, of how this country was created, uh, exploited, and who was used to, to to create wealth. I mean, it's it's America's got a lot of issues in this realm. Sorry, I don't mean to, yeah, but it's true. You yeah, know. we were talking about Joanna Macy's work that reconnects and um, and the practical question of like you got this macro stuff that Jason's been Jason's invoking and talking about. What are the processes for working with people? Genuinely, really working with them over time to to catalyze that kind this kind of healing of the past. Uh, past harms, not just the the current harms that that are being perpetrated. Yeah, yeah. Do folks know Joanna Macy's work? I just assume my pioneers everybody does. <laughs> so I was fortunate to work with her, and I, you know her work. I love that she's like, hey, this what's happening with climate change is too much for us to. Pro- we got to process this, right? Mm-hmm. We've got to have some process by which we can come to terms with it. Uh, I was then part of a group of that same process of, you know, moving through honoring our pain and seeing with you eyes, like all of that was used to address historical legacies of slavery. So same process, 15 white folks, 15 black folks in a room for a year, spending an entire weekend every month just to do that work using that same process, one that was used to deal with, you know, what's happening on the planet from an environmental context yep. Yep. to one being used to dress, you know, a, a mass historical legacy that is with us to this day, as all history is, 
happening right now unless we heal from it. Uh, it was powerful. It was hard. Mm. It was hard work. Mm-hmm. It was hard work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But these things are, you know, we can take these big problems, these big cultural, you know, almost almost impossible to get our minds and, and hearts around. And there are ways of beginning to heal. And yeah, there are processes. Yeah. I, I personally got a lot out of it. I got a lot of healing out of that, that year journey. And I, I found one of the things that I was able to do is I was able to come out. I came out of that being able to speak in a, from a different energy and place around the work mm-hmm. that I was doing, around what that was. And uh, I, as hard as it was, I highly recommend doing it because the, the healing piece is so important. I'm a more healed whole person, so I can heal more. I can help heal others in the world, right? If I'm not healed, I can't. I can't do anything for other folks. We we do a lot of this, like being the wounded person, trying to help those people, and then you just make a mess. So I was grateful for the difficult year, but it was it was well worth it. So good. Um, in a few minutes, we're going to invite questions from folks here in the room. But before we do that, I wonder if you if either of you have questions for each other. That um, and give you some space to do that. Okay. What is on the show? Jason, you got. <laughs> well, I, I want to know how we can work together, and I'm not. I don't just mean that specific project, but um, we we haven't crossed paths, which is always remarkable. No, I don't when hang I, out with architects, Jason. Very no, much. I don't like they're them. Trouble. I don't like them that much. <laughs> I, I say that all the time, so this is not new information. Don't, for don't forget, you're an architect. I know, I know. <laughs> I guess I'm just with the wrong people. I don't know, but uh, I think there is. You know, here's what I want to do, Jason. Here's what we got to do. We need a living building in a black community that has been disinvested. Yeah, I agree. We need that. Yeah. We need it now. I agree. You need to help me make sure that happens. It could be the Detroit Project or yeah. Moral Curve. Yeah. It just needs to be somewhere, and we have to start. I don't want to see those living buildings. I've been to the living building. They're amazing. The Candida building, oh, my God, blew my mind. I spent like half a day in there just like, ah! <laughs> I want to see those in black communities, yeah, right? No, I, I want to see them there, black and brown communities. Yeah, absolutely. Native American communities. Like, I want to see them in places and stop shift this paradigm yeah, that no, you know the, the powerful wealthy white folks get all the good stuff right yeah, it, no, you I know do. so how do we do that i think we can do that we can do that yeah. and and i think we certainly have some living living buildings in non-white communities but you're right they're primarily you know been white and wealthy projects that have been first and i think that that you know I'm glad that people are spending, if they have money and, and resources, that they're doing the right thing in these instances. But that's not success if it's only for a few. So absolutely agree with yeah. you. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, no more trickle-down architecture. Yeah, so let's do that. Let's, all right, all right, <laughs> let's do that. Once it's spoken, it's manifest. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Any other questions for each other before I open it up? Well, I, you know, I know Amer- the American context quite well. I travel a lot, lived in many countries, but Canada, I don't know. And I don't, I'm really curious about what is happening now in terms of the reparations there around the First Nations people and where folks are at with that. And 
um, particularly as it relates to sort of healing, built environment work, like what, what is happening there that, you well, know, is, is relevant for this intersection that we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm born and raised in Canada, practiced um, and lived um, longer now in the United States, but all my family's in Canada. Um, and I think that, I think that in terms of that issue, Canadians have been in denial for a long time. I think that there's this sort of um, Canadian identity that we are this, you know, gentle, loving people that, um, you know, is more more peaceful than our southern neighbor and more with it. And and there may be some truth in that, but it's not the truth. And 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 I think that 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 Canada has been in this sort of uh, state of denial of the fact that when it's come to the First Nations people and 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 many others as well, but in, in particular in Canada, the First Nations have been wrongly treated in by by the Canadian government and by Canadian people for a long, long, long time, mm-hmm. and it was not. Uh, a surprise to anyone with their eyes open that 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 so many children were found across Canada. That's not that's not a surprise. That's what they've been saying mm-hmm. that their children were stolen and they disappeared. And and it's shameful in that my country took so long to to say, oh, there were these children. <laughs> well, they've been telling us that, mm-hmm. but we weren't listening. And and that that's you know a painful reality. So I think Canada, I I hope and I I am seeing signs of it is going through this process of reconciliation. It's going to be many years, but it is starting to happen. And it starts with the ability to admit and to to acknowledge the injustices of the past, and then to make amends. And and that is the and that you know the reconciliation process. I think New Zealand has had a few more years that uh, you know head start. Uh, Canada is trying trying to do its part, I think, uh, but there's still a huge segment of the country that that are not paying attention to any of these uh, these issues. So, um, anyway, yeah. yeah. Also, as a Canadian, I concur. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, our, our studio has been working with um, with an elder called uh, Mark Wedge, who's based is a. Uh, Tlingit and Carcross, uh, former chief in Northern British Columbia, uh, or what's known as Northern British Columbia, um, who has has said to us that it's very hard to have reconciliation when we don't yet have conciliation, yeah. right? That you have to have the truth and you have to have the conciliation of, of coming together, not just re-coming together, not correcting, but actually having having the meeting and the and the connections and those dialogues in some cases for the first time. Um, in some of these contexts, so yeah, it's a fascinating thing the human mind and psychology because <laughs> it's related to what even you said this morning, Jason. Like, people don't want to believe that climate change is happening. Mm-hmm. I don't want to believe that we killed all these people, right, in my country under the watch of my ancestors. Like, mm-hmm. people don't want to believe this stuff. It's fascinating, and I don't know how to get past that piece, but it, it's just well, something that, I'm holding the, the disbelief that that's. Yeah. And that's the, the personal reconciliation side. See, I think reconciliation, there's multiple scales of it. There's cultural and, and, and societal reconciliation. There's the personal reconciliation is being mature enough to sit with the duality of being both 
proud of many of the things that your people and your ancestors have done and also being able to sit with the pain and and the shame of what also your ancestors have done and then a lot of people are not able to do that and so they 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 can't because they can't separate themselves in a healthy way from it. They feel like they're, they're evil if they acknowledge this, so they can't acknowledge that at all then. And, and that's, a, that's a real unfortunate thing. Um, you have to be able to accept that, that uh, the true arc of history and all the good and the bad together if you're going to move forward. So. You do, and, and, but how? How do you get people well, to do that? The, I've seen it. I mean, again, I, that's why I think that the, this this process of, of 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 reconciliation is a process through which you can begin to to have dialogues about really tough, painful things, and and maybe not everyone's ready to have, handle it. But there's, you know, you just said you went through a year long process that was sounds similar to that. Yeah, I mean, people signed up for it, right? Yeah. You have to choose. You have yeah. to choose to want to know the truth. And yeah. I, I don't know how you get folks to to that point, to the <laughs> choice. I'm ready to do the process, right? I think maybe if a lot of us start to do it or more of us start to do it, and then it will build on itself, you know, just like any organic thing, it grows to seed, and it, 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 it starts to grow and grow. So I'm committed. I'm committed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm sure all the people here are committed to. We're gonna open it up to some questions, um, and we have a couple of mics here and here. Um, and so, if anyone has questions, please come up to the mic. Um, Hello. Uh, architecture is one of the few industries where the decisions you make now are almost automatically inherited by poor people, um, like. You build a new house today, that new house is probably going to be bought 30 years from now by a lower income person, um, which is why they tend to deal with things like lead and those sorts of things. So one question I have is, how can we make better decisions around that inter-temporal transfer of resources as they happen across society? Land is kind of the original Ponzi scheme in that uh, it's always accruing value constantly because there's less of it over time. And so how can we use uh, architecture and design to reverse maybe that wealth accrual or wealth extractive process that is inherently embedded in kind of development? How can we use uh, architecture and design to build up and like recenter wealth in communities that have historically not had it so that the trickle goes the other way? I have some thoughts. Go ahead. I'll uh, lean in if I can. I mean, so I, I, I always have had an issue. I just have a personal issue with the commodification of housing as, a, as, a, as an economic driver. Housing is a human right, for God's sake. It should not be about wealth generation and wealth creation. It's like, and, and I, I have family members are doing it. So it's not like I, I don't know people, but I just, like, I'm trying to create a co-housing model, right? Like, I want to live in co-housing, you know, where we have shared ownership. So what I am seeing, and we are working for uh, black land trusts, mm-hmm. right? So black folks coming together. We see brown folks doing this. People try to come together, like, we're going to put this property is collectively owned into property. Now, that's not going to be a big wealth-generating choice, right? That's going to be, though, it's here. It's ours. It has to stay like this for future generations. It's just a different approach around 
land ownership and all of that stuff. I've watched my own family lose all the assets they've had for all the reasons you're talking about over time. We're also seeing like stuff that used to be before folks now is expensive, right? Like I can't live in Stuyvesant town in New York, right? Like it, there's, there's this like inversion happening, this constant displacement, constant shifting displacement. Oh, I don't, we're made this for you guys. Now we don't want to live there. Now we want to come back pushing you all out. What's it going to end? It's going to end when black folks own the land in a way that's equitable and sustainable. And the exciting thing is I'm seeing it happening a lot. I see it happening a lot. I'm in my own black woman's freedom circle. We're looking to buy property and do that. Right. So it's collectively doing it together, getting the social agreements in place. This is how we're going to operate, how we're going to where that takes time. It's like slow development. I guess uh, there's a great cooperative in Jackson, Mississippi. I've been to many times. Uh, I think it's the New West Jackson Cooperative, cooperatively owned, very low income community. I mean, folks can't read. It's that, but they pull together, they own the property together, they can't be moved. You know, so there's ways that I see it happening, but it's usually through collective ownership. Thank you um, all for this really interesting and important dialogue. Um, Deanna, Excuse me if I sound naive. I'm um, wondering about the existence of um, funds for regenerating inner cities and inner city communities. And we've heard so much, you know, even I just Googled it about Detroit and all this new money and new initiatives going into Detroit and them having their own currency coming up and stuff like that. And my thought is, isn't there a lot of funding or isn't there a government source or funding to regenerate the inner city communities and to have, for you to have access with your project in Detroit? And that's just where my thoughts are going in. Because sure. we want to see it funded. We want to see it happen. Yeah. We don't, right now, a lot of those projects are, are funded with new market tax credits, right? Your tax dollars go in. You can use new market tax credits. It doesn't cover the whole thing. Uh, your ARPA dollars, the ARPA dollars coming, are, some are being used. I just applied for some of that money for our projects, right? So it gets distributed to the states. You know, Congresswoman Tlaib, love her. Like, she's distributing that money to 15 community-based projects, uh, we have Measure J down in L.A. County that's going to use the general funds and, you know, fill that coffers and move that into community-based projects. So it, it can be, you're always looking at the federal level, you're looking at the local level. City money uh, is usually a little dodgy and, hard, and really hard to, to, to get. So, yeah, yeah, you're always looking for that. But you've got to have community organizers in counties and cities fighting. Like in California, we've kept Californians for a responsible budget. You've got to track that budget, see what's happening to it, look where it's going, and then be ready for that. You have your project ready for that money, you know. So I, we're constantly looking for that money. And it's, it's there, you know, it's there. Uh, it's not easy to get, you know. There's a lot of money out there. Like, don't get, I'm never, like, I'm an abundance gal. Like, there's money. People just got to give it to you, you know, and how do you get it? So there are, there are mechanisms happening. Thank you for that. Yeah, there's a lot of it. It just needs to go in the right places. Yeah. Um, hi, Jason. I was wondering if you could talk to a little bit about your project in Seattle and also what it's like working. I don't want to pick on Seattle in particular, but what it's like working through the bureaucracies of a city, even if it's a so-called progressive city. 
The Climate Pledge Arena? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's specifically what I was Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I did, you know, I didn't share, um, I didn't share that project um, in Seattle, uh, but it's, it's a, a fascinating project. It's a city-owned asset, so it was a collaboration with the city. Um, it was uh, in Seattle, not in the, you know, everyone knows the Space Needle. In Seattle, uh, next to the Space Needle uh, is an incredible old, was an incredible old arena uh, that was built for the World's Fair in 1962, and uh, um, it had kind of seen the end of its useful life in some ways, and, you know, 1962, uh, it's, you know, uh, wasn't quite up to, up to modern standards in a lot of ways, and there was a, a real push to have um, a new uh, NHL hockey team. Uh, in Seattle and to revitalize and make a, a better music venue, performance venue as well. And OVG and the city uh, came together and with a whole bunch of others to transform this old uh, building into a new incredible uh, arena and music venue, uh, which they've now done. Um, and I was delighted to be asked um, to help transform it into the world's greenest sports and entertainment venue. Um, and uh, around that time, um, Amazon, who's based in, in the Seattle area, um, were interested in being part of the process. And we decided, um, and not me, but this group decided uh, that they wanted to name the new facility not after a company, but after a mission. And when they brought me on board, they said, well, um, what do you think? And I said, well, if you're going to call it the Climate Pledge Arena, you can't have any fossil fuels in this building. And, and so the first thing we did was we removed all the natural gas infrastructure, completely decarbonized the building, which is now run, uh, powered entirely with renewable energy, uh, the first uh, building of that sort of magnitude uh to, to then do that and then go beyond that into what we call scope three emissions, tracking uh, the carbon footprint of fan travel, uh, of food uh, and procurement, and and beginning to do offsets for everything. And the Climate Pledge Arena is just this remarkable uh, facility in Seattle now that I think is it's the best place uh, in the world to watch hockey. It's an incredible place to watch concerts. And it has the lowest carbon footprint of any a venue of its type anywhere in the world. And uh, it just opened a little less than a year ago in Seattle. So it's pretty darn, pretty darn cool. Um, so if you get a chance to come visit us in Seattle, go see the Climate Pledge Arena. And we even make uh, the ice, ice on the rink out of rainwater. So we uh, capture the rain off the roof. And we make, uh, it's the first time in the NHL, uh, every, you know, has uh, permitted that, and I think that'll be a new thing. Uh, an electric zamboni that clears the ice. So many cool things. This, is, all very, this is very Canadian. It's very Canadian. It's a very Canadian moment. <laughs> yeah. It's like I got the call. Can you help us with a hockey arena? I'm like I'll be there. Uh, yeah. What time do you want me there? Let's, let's do it. So. <laughs> so. My name is Paloma Pavel, and I'm co-founder with Carl Anthony, who's an African-American architect Carl and Anthony. urban strategist, sends his love. And um, so one of the things that we struggle with a lot is just this question of 
home and how we live on planet Earth as a home, who has homes, who doesn't has homes, have homes. And, and when we talk to young people, many of them just feel just hopeless, especially being in the Bay Area of error having a home, and we're losing so many arts, artists, activists, um, people of color um, from the Bay Area, displacement of all kinds, people just exodus. And I would love to hear that, that same inspiration that you just brought forward, Jason, about what are some of the innovations that you see happening that are responding to people's spiritual longing and physical necessity to have a home as a human right. And could you paint a picture of sort of the growing edge, the sort of emerging possibilities of what um, a home can be? Um, we're talking to some people making cooperative homes and, and the spiritual core of that, of what people long for in a home. Can you, can you expand a bit more on the question, though? Because home, what? Tell me what our new homes might be like, where we we actually have equity and social justice linked to um, livable green buildings. You know, yeah, yeah. What do they look like, feel like. Who's there? What are we doing in them? Oh, Just like you were talking about the hockey arena, yeah. with that level of granular detail. Take us to the future of home. Well, that's that sounds like a whole conference theme, uh, and and it certainly has been. You know, um, I would encourage people to come to the Living Future Conference as a great sister conference to this one, where we get into questions just like that. But I will try to answer that that it's not one thing, of course. Um, depending where you are, what our homes need to be like are very very different, and there are a lot of, by the way, living building homes. Some of them are multifamily. There is. There has been a couple affordable housing living building projects that, that um, where the gap in funding has been met by some great foundations like Kresge and JPP and Candida that have helped bridge that gap. So so home, you know, means a, a whole lot of different things. I, I live in a living building home. Um, I live in a kind of a rural island uh, off, off the coast of Seattle. I like to live in the trees. And um, what I can say is, you know, all these buildings, whether they're homes, or offices, they need to be healthier for people. Uh, to you know, they need to not give us cancer. They need to not make us sick. They need to not have legacies upstream and downstream that make other species sick or other people sick in a poorer community, which is often the case where our materials are made in one community and the pollution harms those people, and then the wealthy benefit from the product itself. That's not. That's not a living building, so you know there's no redless chemicals. The air indoor air quality is better. Um, you know this is what this is what we need. And to, to the gentleman's question, we need homes that also last not 20 years and, or 30 years or 15 years and fall apart. We whatever our home is, these are homes that should be passed on to the next generations. They need to be they need to last for 100, 200 years and be repairable and be built with real materials, with craftsmanship that lasts, that people love, that are beautiful, that people want to repair, you know. So it's all those things, and I don't know if that's what you wanted me to talk about. I but, think it's part of it, and yeah, I'd love to hear it. Deanna speak to the yeah. racial spatial apartheid yeah, what's, aspect yeah. of belonging in one's home and, and being not sort of living in a box in these nuclear families. But I think, mm. I think young people are reaching towards 
community and cooperatives and living in in different ways with each other. I was just uh, in Boston where uh, multiracial communities are talking about urban monasteries where um, multiracial folks are coming together and having a kind of spiritual ordering of the day. Um, yeah, do you want to speak to that? First of all, hi, Paloma. <laughs> Good to see you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I really feel like one of the reasons my Black Women's Freedom Circle is interested in purchasing something together is because we're losing a, we're losing our community, right? People are having to, to leave the Bay Area. We need to kind of, so in a way to try to get a handle on that, you know, there's also the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative that's trying to do that in the East Bay. Um, I, I wish we could build our own homes, actually, have a little, like, why... Why can't we make it ourselves, right? How do we how do we do that? Um, even in an urban context, uh, we're pulling our resources together, and, and then for the housing piece, I think we're talking about multi generational, right? So it's not just young people; it's some babies, some elders, and everyone in between. Having spaces in that housing that are not my unit, your unit, just but like, what does the communal space look like? What kind of spaces do we want to create there together? Is it a place to break bread? Is it a spiritual uh, sanctuary that we need, and it's a garden? but that together we're building the kind of home that we want to see. And then another group of people may want a different thing, you know, than what this collective wants, but that there's a real building of home that happens before you even make it, you know, like the, you know, we're having these potlucks every week where we're talking about what kind of home we want to make together and then having the financing infrastructure to be able to support that kind of thing, right? To make it easy for groups to work collectively and break out of this, like, I'm going to get my McMansion house and live with my nuclear family over here. I, it's not sustainable. It's not a sustainable model. And I think, you know, um, Mia Birdsong has, I don't know if you know Mia Birdsong's book, How We Are Together. Mia's going to kill me because I forgot her book name right now. But talk about different ways of living. Right. And and this idea that, you know, our primary partner is like the main thing, like, no, like it, it, I just really love that we're starting to think more like that. Not like we, it's new. Right. This has been happening. But I, the emergence of that and the longing for that way of living together is, is something I deeply want to have. And I'm struggling to have it. I'm also struggling. I can't even answer all those questions. I don't know. We're trying. Thank you. We have another question. Aloha. Thank you so much for your work. Well, my wish is to take you and exponentially rocket you out to all the communities. I'm here from Hawaii, where architecture is fairly abysmal, aside from the billionaires behind the gates at Kukio. Like your views of the future, I know it's a huge thing, and I do want to come to that conference, but just a sense of if you're optimistic, and you have addressed this somewhat, Tiana, about you know what you're doing and how you see it, but there's like most buildings are not like this at all. And how how can you help us go home and be more optimistic? Because I always go home with great pioneer stories, and this has been extraordinary. Mahalo Nui Loa. I would just say you have an amazing thing that's happening in Hawaii now. Uh, you should just know about the project. Everyone supports the project. You should support the project. It's Lama Lama Ku'ulu. And it's going to be the first uh, Native Hawaiian-owned large-scale development. It's a healing center, a cultural center, 
we've been just talking to them and trying to support them, but I, I, it's the first time it's happened there, and it's going to have. They're going to be growing food on the land. Uh, they're really getting back to actually an old, uh, and I don't know all the Hawaiian words for it, so you will have to forgive me. But where the way that land was held, not uh-huh. in this capitalist uh-huh. way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, I like. <laughs> so yeah. It's on the Big Island. And there's a living building on the Big Island. It's a school, by the way. Yeah. Sorry. And and this project should be a living building. The whole all the building should be that. It should be great. It's just it's just that they're trying to find land right now. So though they will get it, it's going to happen. But just know that this is something a project that folks should support there. I'm not sure if this was part of your question, but I think you were asking about whether we're optimistic. And of course, it depends on the moment. <laughs> I, I, I think that some, somehow more people need to be able to sit with both the joy and the pain, the optimism and the depression, and act from what's needed. It's hard to see the way the world is going and not be depressed, but being depressed doesn't do it any good. And it doesn't do you and I any good. And it's it is important to have moments of joy and recognize that this is a beautiful place that we have and this is worth saving and there's still a lot of beauty to save and wonderful things. And 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 there are millions of people doing wonderful things. So there's lots of cause for optimism at the same time. But we, we have to find a way to sit with these dualities. And 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 move forward, uh, and use use either as the engine we need to make the change, if that makes sense. And if you, but if you dwell in one world or the other, that's not the real world. You know what I mean? And and uh, when you dwell only in a place of depression, you just bring everything down. And when you dwell only in optimism, you gloss over. It's a you know the things that need to be hard. They're both seductive delusions. Yes. They're everything. Yeah. We have another question. I had a question for you both. It's kind of two uh, sides of the same coin in some ways. That comes back to materials as far as uh, going towards regenerative design. For me as a designer, uh, regenerative is something that I'd love for us to look at it being the unobtainium. In some ways to the fact that like it's something we strive and reach for. And once we get close, we should move the bar further. And I think you've done an amazing job at that in so many different ways. And so from a material standpoint, when I'm working in uh, the global south in many ways, it's real easy to create a value proposition for communities that involves them in the actual materials that we use. And so they can come from locally sourced. And um, it's such a huge, uh, not just beyond the carbon footprint, but how is it in traditional new design? and everything new, how is it that our materials are actually going to come to the point uh, that they can come from locally sourced when natural building and everything else is such a difficult proposition here? So what do you see as the future uh, for materials that can actually be part of the value chain for local communities? And uh, secondly, in in that same space, um, for either of you, is uh, where we go from here to make it just as sexy as new design to repurposing all the empty space that's out there. 
Um, and there's just so much empty buildings in the universe uh, and so many people that are homeless. It's just such a mind-blowing feat that we, <laughs> you know, it's just way less sexy to put new walls and paint on something than it is to have an amazing new building. So those are just two things. So. I mean, I think all buildings are sexy. Uh, sometimes they just need a little help. Yeah. Um, we're, we do a lot of work um, in uh, taking old buildings and bringing them back alive. And they often have great old, if they're depending on the era, they have great materials or they might have craftsmanship embedded in them that, that, that are not found, you know. Um, but I think that, that giving new life to something old is, is an incredibly powerful and wonderful thing to do. And um, we just did, um, we just took an old uh, 19, it was a 1970s building, so not, not like a really old building, but, you know, it was also at the end of its life. And uh, this is a project I did in Atlanta, Georgia. And we were hired by ASHRAE, who's the uh, American Society Heating Refrigeration, blah, 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 incredible organization. And they bought this energy hog, old, dilapidated 1970s building. And they said, we want to make it a net zero top of the line office building to show that you could take these whole these, this whole era of buildings that we built in the 60s and 70s when we didn't care about energy and we can make it energy efficient we can make it healthy we can make it beautiful and that's what we did and last week we got um these one of the state of georgia aia honor awards for the project showing that it can be sexy so that's kind of cool and uh, and yeah, I mean, we so I don't know. We love working with existing buildings, and because you're, you're totally right, this is huge. We can't just build new all the time. Uh, that's not going to work. So we have all this amazing infrastructure. So what was the first question? The, part the first part was going into uh, local materials and how uh, being part of the value chain for local communities is easier for my work in Central and South America or Southeast Asia. It's super simple to connect. Really poor communities to the process and they get to reap the benefits we're here. Uh, how are you connecting with the materials for um, the buildings that you're building new? Um, and how does that get to be regenerative in a standpoint? Like we don't, we don't really manufacture a whole lot here. And so at the end of the day, so much is coming from elsewhere. Uh, and how can we build a restorative value chain for materials locally and have that oh, wow. really start to feed um, these buildings. I think yeah. that might be a question for both of you. Yeah, I'm happy to okay. follow. If, I mean, it's a, it's another whole conference, right? Like that, the whole subject around local materials. And um, I mentioned the two-way project. They built their own earth blocks uh, in that project. And um, you know, we we try to. We try to use local materials, and LBC, as you as you know, encourages as tight a radius as possible. And and yet, it's hard because, as you point out, um, we often, we don't make as much as we used to in a local economy. So how do you begin to figure out? Well, what can we make again? Uh, what can we salvage and reuse? We love salvaged materials and and finding new life for things, and and then working as close at hand, uh, not shipping things from all over the world. And, and, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to do that. Um, I'm not sure if I'm getting that all aspects you're, of it. You're, no, you're answering it. But yeah. I, and, and since we only have a couple couple more minutes, yeah. I, I want to really maybe, maybe hand the last word to you. And, and you can take this where you'd like. But, you know, I think I think part of the question was uh, was tying the kind of the bigger question of the built environment and how that ties to 
to these other systems of economics and so much of the work you've done around trying to program for restorative economics um, in communities as well that kind of make it bigger than just the, the buildings you're designing. Man, you gave me the last thing? Yeah, that's not it. right. That's not right. Okay, I'll say what I can. But yeah, I just think that, and we've touched on it, and it's something we're really trying to expand to do, is it's not just that you can't just talk about environmental sustainability. You can't just talk about social sustainability. You have to talk about economic justice. You have to talk about food justice. You have to talk about policy all at the same time. Right all at the same time and how do you build your own capacity even to engage in that conversation what are the what are the processes by which we do that we have to learn different languages we have to come with beginner's mind right there's a different shift in our own being that has to happen to be able to do that and i i truly believe it's the only way we'll solve any of these problems i think they're solvable i really do just to speak to the optimism i'm i'm a highly optimistic person i'm a highly annoying and persistent person <laughs> and I think that we can do this I do but it will require all of us you know it will require you know, and never looking at somebody like they're the bus driver they are equally have a gift and a contribution to bring to the table I've never it's never been a good idea to exclude anyone from that process it just requires Really, the ego is mighty, y'all. A mighty little thing. We have to check it and move it aside and know that everyone has value and has something to contribute. And if we can do this multidisciplinary work, which is also why I love pioneers, uh, we will solve these problems. Maybe not in my lifetime. It doesn't have to be in my lifetime or our uh, lifetimes. So just know we're, we're designing for seven generations out all the time. Thank you to these very persistent, lifelong troublemakers, Dana Van Buren and Jason McLennan. Thank you. Please hands together for you and thank you for your time. Thank you, thank you for, your for moderating. <laughs>
thrust into the public scene by Europe's inane handling of an inevitable crisis. I love it in the few words he was able to get in a whole theory of how crises happen in capitalism on a regular basis and each time seem to be handled by the bourgeoisie, if I can say that, as if it were a surprise and stunning and unique and somehow exceptional when it is none of those things. In January 2015, he was elected to Greece's parliament with the largest majority in the country, and he served as Greece's finance minister between January and early July of 2015. During those tumultuous six months, he fought against three institutions determined to oppose on the poorest of Greeks the harshest austerity in history. Those three institutions, the International Monetary Fund, the European Commission, and the European Central Bank. Yanis Varoufakis resigned from the finance ministry when he refused to sign a loan agreement that perpetuated Greece's debt deflationary cycle. A politician with principles who resigns when those are violated, even by his own closest associates who were struggling within that Syriza uh, period of Greek history. In 2016, Varoufakis co-founded the Democracy in Europe Mo uh, Movement 25. Two years later, in 2018, he launched its Greek electoral wing. That's that disobedience front I mentioned. And together with U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders, he established the Progressive International, a global movement with 200 million affiliated members worldwide. He has constantly been speaking, writing, and politically active as a critic of the capitalist status quo. I'm enormously proud and pleased to bring you, Giannis, to our microphones and to our cameras. Thank you, Rick. I'm also very, very honored to be on your program again. Uh, and as you know, but maybe not everyone in our audience knows, uh, I have appreciated what you have been doing on the other side of the Atlantic for decades now, which is to keep the flame going, the flame of a Marxist critique of US capitalism, of global capitalism. Uh, you were amongst the very few uh, economists who continued to make the point of the immiseration of the American working class through a combination of wage austerity and financialization, piling up huge loans upon them to keep the American dream going before in 2008 the whole house of cars came down and the working class of America was left with absolutely nothing, destroyed dreams of uh, the American dream of uh, uh, you know, financialization that they would make it big by you know, scaling up their mortgages. Uh, your work at that front has been inspirational this side of the pond here in Europe. Thank you. Very kind of you. Thank you, Janis, too. Let's jump in now and give our audience a chance to hear your thinking about it. Let's start with what is very much shaking this side of the Atlantic, and maybe also your side, the so-called banking crisis that we are in. 
that was precipitated, even though it's been building for a while, it was precipitated by the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank in, in California, the Signature Bank in New York, perhaps also Credit Suisse in uh, Switzerland. And you have made a remark that I thought would be a good place to start. Your, your comment, at least as you are quoted, quote, let the banks burn. Tell us a little bit what you think is going on and what that quotation means. Let me preface my comments with uh, the strong conviction that this is not a new banking crisis. This is exactly the same banking crisis that we experienced in 2007-2008. It never went away. It's not that it was fixed and now it's coming back. Uh, the crisis of Wall Street, of the smaller banks, of the shadow banking system, both in the United States and across the European Union and the United Kingdom. That crisis never went away. What happened was that uh, sometime at the beginning of 2009, once the Obama administration had been sworn in, and the G7 leaders and seven bankers gathered in London under the aegis of a certain Mr. Gordon Brown, the then Labour Prime Minister, uh, they decided essentially to print more than 30 trillion US dollars in order to refloat finance without fixing its structural problems, because these problems are impossible to fix without effectively undoing the whole model of globalization that was built since the early 1990s. Uh, so it's a bit like what it did in 2009, was a little like um, administering very large doses of cortisone oh. uh, into a cancer patient. The tumor doesn't go away, the patient since Perkia seems to be doing better, ISIS has not gone away. Uh, indeed, I want to think that I think that the crisis actually worse now. Because, you know, back in 2007-2008, uh, we discovered, did we not, once we looked at this, of J.P. Morgan, of um, Barclays Bank in Britain, Deutsche Bank and so on, they were full, fraudulent, subprime and derivative trades. And there was predatory lending, there were shenanigans, it was just pure corruption, which of course was inflated by the policies of Greenspan and the new um, the cabal that was ruling the United States and Europe since the 1970s. Now, since then, and if you, well, you mentioned uh, the Silicon Valley Bank, you mentioned um, a number of banks, including Credit Suisse, the Swiss mega bank, which um, has a very good past, a very sordid and corrupt past. But nevertheless, they were nothing as bad as Lehman Brothers or J.P. Morgan or Barclays. Nothing as bad. If anything, they were following the rules, the rules that were set down for them by the Obama administration, by the European Central Bank, by the regulator authorities in the United Kingdom. All that had happened was the policy of socialism for the bankers, the 30 plus trillion that was uh, minted by our central banks effectively to refloat finance, that had infected uh, the whole of the corporate world. Uh, essentially, there was a combination of one thing. First thing was the underinvestment, investment, massive underinvestment, which was due to the austerity that went hand in hand, the austerity for the many, 
that went hand in hand with the socialism for the bankers. And on the other hand, the purchase by central banks of government bonds, keeping their value artificially high, the banking system was encouraged to purchase these bonds. So there was this transfer of monies minted from the central bank onto the books of the private banks, but in the form of inflated public debt. This may sound very complicated to our audience. It's not really complicated. It's really very easy. Capitalism had fallen on its face. It was refusing to get up. The only policies that would have helped bring capitalism on its legs again would be a kind of new deal, Rooseveltian New Deal, a serious investment program, a works program, a program of transferring money to the people that would actually spend it if they had it, to the poor and to the weak. Uh, that never happened because finance are never allowed the Clintons of the world and the Browns of the world and the European unions of the world to do that. So instead, they pumped huge quantities of cortisone into our banking system and our public debt system. Yeah. And we know that Anybody who knows anything about medicine, I know very little about medicine, but anybody who knows anything about medicine knows that if you pump huge ones of, of cortisone into a patient, it's not going to end well. Oh. So we have the same crisis that began in 2008, continuing today. So let me come to the uh, provocative title of my article, let the, let, let the Banking System Burn. Well, there are two things you can do with the banks. One is to continue to prop them up, socialism for the bankers. The second thing is to deny them the monopoly that they enjoy over our payment system and over our savings. Now, if a banker out there wants to take the risk of you know, borrowing money from you or from me in order to lend it to somebody else at a slightly higher interest rate, I'm happy for them to do it. But this is not what's going on. What is going on now? Well, now, yokes is that banks force you to keep your money with them because they own the monopoly of the payment system. With digital technology today, there's absolutely no reason why the Fed could not give a digital wallet to everyone where they can store with 100% safety their savings and affect transactions, all they need is a PIN number, to pass money from one person to another effectively. You would have a digital ledger that belongs to the Fed and when you make a payment, a sum of dollars will go from your little cell on that ledger to the coffee shop's ledger. And that would be it. That would be a remarkable revolution. It would cut off the middlemen, the bankers. It would allow us to say to bankers, well, if you fail, you fail. We don't care. And then you are never going to be too big to fail because you are not going to have the monopoly over our payment system. Uh, the tragedy is that even the bankers understand that there is a logic to this, but of course the reality is that they have so much political power that they will not allow the Fed or the European Central Bank to do it, even though the Fed and the European Central Bank, I have this on good authority from within, that they are experimenting with these, these digital wallets. Um, they know that it will be a very efficient way of running as a public utility or payment system, but they also know that Wall Street has too much power over our governments, so much power that they are going to utilize in order to stop the Fed and the European Central Bank from doing that. 
Would you agree with the following sentence? We are living through the decline of the American empire and of its capitalist center. Stay with us, Giannis, and to our audience as well, stay with us after a short break. We'll be right back to hear what Giannis Varoufakis has to say in response to the question. Before we move on, I want to remind everyone that Economic Update is produced by Democracy at Work, a small donor-funded nonprofit media organization celebrating 10 years of producing critical system analysis and visions of a more equitable and democratic world through a variety of media. Like the long-form lecture series I host called Global Capitalism, designed to help others understand current economic events and trends so they can explain the impact and effects capitalism creates across the globe to others. Global Capitalism is available on our website, democracyatwork.info. There you can also learn more about everything we produce, sign up for our mailing list, follow us on social media, and support the work we do. Please stay with us. We will be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. We are speaking with Yanis Varoufakis, member of the Greek parliament, and before the break, I had asked him what he thinks about the sentence, the American empire is declining, and with it, its capitalist center. So let me turn it over to you again, Giannis. What do you think? In one sense, the United States economic machine has been faltering and declining since the mid-60s, as you know when the United States lost its trade surplus. And the result of that was, as we know, that uh, Richard Nixon on the 15th of August 1971 blew up the Bretton system, the, the Bretton Woods system that the United States had created. Why? Because America was no longer capable, due to it being a deficit country, to um, maintain the global dollar-based system that it had created in 1944. So in a sense, there's been a decline. Um, Rick, back in 1970, when uh, Henry Kissinger was uh, um, not even in the State Department, he put a question to his uh, entourage. And the question was very similar to yours. Now that we're declining as an economic power, how can, how can we maintain our hegemony? And the answer that was given to him by a young man back then, youngish man, Paul Volcker, you remember him, right? <laughs> when he was uh, acting as an advisor to Henry Kissinger at the National Security Agency uh, Council. So um, it's really very simple. We have to make sure that we maintain our hegemony by making other people pay for it, which is the model after the 1970s, which Paul Volcker also helped establish once he had moved to the Fed. Essentially, if you think about it, it's quite remarkable. The American empire is the first empire in human history that has managed to make the wealthy of the rest of the world, of the conquered, if you want, voluntarily, voluntarily to send their wealth to Wall Street and therefore to close the loop, the recycling loop, whereby the American trade deficit operates 
as uh, vacuum cleaners sucking into the American markets, the net exports of everybody else, Germany, France, uh, Italy, and of course Japan, and primarily China. Uh, with uh, 70% of the profits of the Japanese, the Italians, the French, the Japanese, and the Chinese going back into real estate, into the stock exchange, uh, and into uh, the insurance businesses of the United States. So, to cut a long answer short, uh, the center of the American empire is shrinking in terms of GDP, of total income, in terms of total investment, in terms of the jobs that it can create, good quality jobs within the United States. All of this is in decline. But the hegemony of the United States does not depend on that. There is a disconnect between the real economy of the United States and the power of the rentier class, the rentier American ruling class. Um, what power hinges on, since it doesn't hinge on industry, on actual income, is on the capacity to maintain the hegemony of the dollar and the dollar payment system so as to ensure that the surplus value produced in China, in Japan, in Germany, and so on, ends up in the United States, not with the American people, of course, right? You know this better than anyone else. Not with the working class in the Midwest, but with the very, very few amongst the American regime. All right. I want to turn next to um, your own activism. Something is going on in Europe uh, having to do with the extraordinary movement of the French people into the streets against Macron, having to do even with the uh, trade unions and the transport sector in Germany, having to do with the Greeks in response to the railway catastrophe and the role of the government. I want your opinion. Here in the United States, we're speaking of a rise of labor militancy on a scale we haven't seen for 70 years. Is something comparable going on in Europe? I have good news and I have bad news. I'll sell the good news. The good news is that, yes, in France and in Greece, in other countries as well, but primarily in these two countries, um, you know, there's a tradition of that um, to this. The French had a revolution and then a few years later, the Greeks had a revolution, um, both connected to the American Revolution, but that's going a long way back. Uh, both in France and in Greece, there is clearly uh, a, a tidal switch. Uh, the tide of neoliberalism and the success of um, toxic radical centrism uh, have been reversed by the people out there. In Greece, you are right, we had a massive accident killing 57 young people. And this railway accident, it wasn't an accident. It was almost predetermined as a result of the botched privatization of our railways. And that has turned the tide, and now we have a majority of the people out there who are against privatizations, and they um, are clearly expressing a view in favor of renationalization. That is a big Similarly, in France, Macron's reign has been punctured. Now he's a late duck. He will continue as a late duck because the demonstrators, the very brave demonstrators, seize the opportunity of railing against Macron's pension reforms. By the way, the conventional media 
the systemic media present that reform as being moderate. And it sounds moderate because what did Macron do? He pushed the age limit when you go from a wage to a pension from 62 to 64. It sounds pretty moderate. Well, it is not. Once you take into consideration the fact that the average poor Frenchman lives 10 years less than the average French male rich man, person. So that, that means that by elevating the, you deny a very substantial proportion of working class men the opportunity to get any pension at all. So this is the good news. The good news is that our peoples here in Europe, especially in Greece and France, but in other countries too, have turned the tide which was essentially um, submerging opposition to the neoliberal, toxic, uh, pro-oligarchic policies across Europe. Now, the bad news. The bad news is that we are nowhere near returned to the height of 2014-2015, when we had hundreds of thousands of millions of people in Spanish cities occupying the piazzas, remembering the We had millions here in Greece over a period of three months. We had the Blockupy movement in Germany. Back then, the structural crisis of European capitalism was so deep, the euro itself, our currency, our single currency, was very close to capitulating, to uh, falling victim of its own hubris. Uh, and what happened was that we elected the government here in Greece, which had the hopes of every progressive European on its back. Our government surrendered on that faithful evening of the 5th of July 2015. Since then, Rick, our movements are just a shadow of themselves. They are picking up again. But we must not exaggerate yet the extent to which they are capable of putting an effective break, effective break, final break, on this runaway train of neoliberal inhumanity. How do you, and I need to press you to be brief here, but how do you account for how stable is the apparent European decision to support and fall in behind the United States in the war in Ukraine, in the sanctions program against the Russia and all of that? What, what is going on there? Has Europe given up being separate from the United States in the struggle with China? Is there any space for a European capitalism, or is that disappearing? It's disappearing, very clear. Very clear. And the ruling classes here, they will give up on the dream. They had a dream. The European ruling classes had a dream of a degree of strategic of the European Union. Not given up completely. Donald Trump started that break when he effectively rubbished Europe's attempt to take an independent position vis-a-vis Iran after Donald Trump won the house. And now the war, you know, take Macron. Macron is not gung-ho like, you know, Biden or like the British government. He doesn't want to see Ukrainian troops take over Moscow, which is a preposterous idea anyway. Um, I would like to see what I would like to see, which is... Um, you know, a peace treaty 
But he can't bear to say that. The moment Macron opens his mouth and says something like that, he's going to be removed <laughs> from the Elysee. The, you know, Le Monde, the, the bourgeois press are going to destroy him if he dares say that. So I think the answer is that with every crisis we've had in Europe over the last 20, 25 years, and the euro, our currency has a lot to do with that, but that's a big story and I won't delve into this. With every crisis we've had, the capacity of the European Union's bourgeoisie to become, to have a voice of itself, um, is disappearing. It's disappearing very fast. In the time we have left, another enormous question. Do you think that China is the emerging global hegemon, or do you think that some sort of multipolar, um, different kind of global economic organization is emerging? It's very, very difficult to tell, but you know what I think is really important regarding your question? Do you know who I think is the greatest impediment to China becoming a global hegemon? It's a rhetorical question, I'll answer it. It's Chinese capitalists. Chinese capitalists do not want the dollar to be dethroned uh, as the exorbitant privileged currency. Why? Because all their savings and investments are in, the, in, in dollars. And the demand for the factories produced in China, in Shanghai, in Shenzhen, Guangzhou, that demand is due to the American trade deficit, which sucks into the United States those products. And that American trade deficit will not be able to be financed. If there may be, the one, the Chinese currency, where poverty take the dollar. So there is a clash within the Communist Party of China. Between those representing labor and those representing capital, we have a massive class war within the Chinese Communist Party. And I find this absolutely fascinating because in the end, China is the only country I know, substantial country, large economy, where the working class um, is actually fighting an effective class war, even though it has to do this within the halls of the Chinese Communist Party against the representatives within the Chinese Communist Party of the bourgeoisie. All right, Yanis, we've come, unfortunately, to the end of our uh, half hour here. I want to thank you very much for your answers. I know it's much for us all to digest and think about, but I hope that we will be able to call you again and continue our transatlantic uh, collaboration and dialogue. Thank you very, very much again. It's my extreme pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. To my audience, as usual, I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Okay, we got quite a dose tonight. So I'm going to pass this talking stick to our, our, our master of ceremonies of saying aloha. <laughs> It's coming, Rainbird, and it's got all these angels and fairies and feathers and rainbows and crystals and menahunis and um, Sasquatch and uh, all of the rest of it, salamanders and all kinds of things. Here it comes. All right. All right. <laughs> and thank you, thank you, thank you for this evening. 
it was good as usual, and looking forward to this afternoon, and we do this some more. So, lots of gratitude, and I send this talking stick over to you, Rama. What you got? Uh, this is Aurora Ray. Uh, unveiling the Cosmic Truth. Unveiling the Cosmic Truth? All right. Let's do that, Rama. Okay. Call to all star seeds and light workers. Hello, fellow light workers and star seeds. I am writing to you because I feel that you are an important part of my ascension. Our dear Galactic Federation contacted me yesterday and urged me to share this vital information with you. They told me that if enough people wake up and start to realize who they really are, then it will help with the ascension process for everyone. So now, I am reaching out to you in the hopes that you can share this message with others. Let others know that they can learn how to reach their full potential as human beings. The key to enlightenment is knowing who you truly are, the creator of it's your reality. You are not your thoughts, body, or mind. These things are temporary vehicles that allow us to experience this lifetime on Earth, but they are not who we truly are. When we realize who we really are behind our outward manifestations, we immediately become enlightened and free from suffering. We come into a state of grace where all is well and there is nothing left to do or achieve because we have already arrived at the perfection of our natural state. The problem is that many people think that their physical bodies are who they really are. They have the sensation that they are trapped inside their own skin and are unable to escape. They think they are the voices in their heads, the thoughts that run around in their heads, and they believe they are the emotions that come and go in their body. They do not realize that they are something other than this. They do not know that there is a deeper level to who they really are. In fact, you have experienced this deeper level of consciousness before, but you were so young when it happened that you did not remember it. You were in a deep state of meditation or relaxation when suddenly you had an experience of consciousness where you felt very deeply connected to everything around you. You felt like you were part of everything around you. There was no separation between yourself and anything else. It was an amazing experience, wasn't it? That feeling, that beautiful experience, actually represents your true nature. That feeling is who you really are, deep down inside of your being. But unfortunately, most people grow out of that feeling over time because most adults teach children to separate from life instead of connecting with it. I am talking here about a different kind of connection. It is your connection to the world around you, your connection to the universe, and your connection to the divine. When you are able to realize this connection, then you have okay. entered into the fifth dimension. The transition to the fifth dimension has already begun. This can be seen in many ways, through various supernatural occurrences, including UFOs and their occupants crop circles, spontaneous combustion, and balls of light in photos. 
All of this is part of the cosmic upgrade that is taking place on Earth as we enter the fifth dimension. The fifth dimension is a step beyond the fourth dimension, which is what we are currently operating in. In the fourth dimension, you deal with your emotions, and in the fifth dimension, you do not need to, because you realize that there are no emotions. You merely look at life as a dance and enjoy it from that perspective. This can be difficult for many people, because they have been taught to have fear by those who wish to control them, those who wish for them to be slaves. These days, we are living in an age where almost everyone is aware of what's going on around them, yet they choose to remain asleep and unaware of their true selves. The power of choice lies within each individual, and although there will be more and more people awakening into the fifth dimension, it's critical to awaken your family and friends so that they may realize themselves as they truly are. How to ascend? How to enter the fifth dimension? The answer is that you don't need to do anything about this. You just need to watch your body, thoughts, feelings, and actions. This is the only way. There is no other way to enter the fifth dimension. All your doubts will disappear automatically if you follow this simple technique. This technique is like an ultimate key that opens all the doors of the universe. You can use this exercise in many ways. Allowing yourself time to think without being distracted by your activity. To get rid of the stress and negativity that is accumulated in your mind throughout the day by not being able to think about it for a period of time. To connect with your inner self and thus bring out the best in yourself. To feel the world around you more clearly. To rest from doing any activity and a lot more. The main focus of this exercise is to empty your mind of thoughts for 5 to 10 minutes. You can do this exercise anytime you want and anywhere you want. There is no need for any special preparation or place. Just sit comfortably with your back straight and close your eyes. Then take a few deep breaths and relax your whole body. Let go of all thoughts, worries, ideas, or plans that come to mind. The key is to watch your breath. Take deep, long, and very slow breaths in and out, and do nothing more but observe your breaths. You may watch your body, actions, thoughts, and feelings, but do not engage by reacting to them. Simply observe what comes and goes. You have been imprisoned in your mind up to this point. You are living in a dream world that is created by your thoughts and feelings. Now you can open your eyes and see who is watching these activities. You can become free from this prison and be free forever. Now I am giving you the good news that it is possible to live permanently in the fifth dimension. This is the place of supreme consciousness or supreme blissfulness or godliness, which is beyond time and space. I have seen many people who have been there for many years with their physical bodies as they have done this exercise since a long time ago. This technique can easily be learned by anyone at home as it requires no money or other things too much to learn. Just watch your body, actions, thoughts and feelings without reacting to them. You are a being, a soul, spirit, energy and not just a physical body. The body is just a temporary vessel. You are eternal and made of pure energy. 
Your soul never dies and never gets sick. It doesn't age. It's time to tune in. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Oh, this is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, ambassador of the Galactic Federation. everybody. We'll see you this afternoon. Got good dreams tonight, I'm sure. I can feel it. I think we can all feel it that now we're moving forward. Yeah. As we can. <laughs> okay, aloha. Uh, until we until we meet again this afternoon. Sat Nam. Sat Nam Ki. Ah, Homitakuyasan. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart. No evil, live long and prosper. Aloha.